Derek, we can't sing. We can't dance. Yeah. We can't write. Right. No real talent. Nope. But we can podcast, and I can stay poor off podcasting. That's arguably a talent. But sure. Well, welcome to another episode of Watch If You Dare, where we've got on two returning guests at the same time. Uh, so we have VP Morris returning, as well as Shelby Scott. So we've got two awesome guests. Say hey, everybody. Hello. Hey, everybody. Also, two listeners, what kind of caused this episode to come together is VP, you're an author. Shelby, on your podcast, you read a story from VP. I did. And I didn't know that we had mutual friends. I had no idea. Yep. <laughs> so it was just happened. I really love VP's work. And so here we are today. <laughs> Derek, you're the one who actually reached out and was like, oh, you must have realized that VP has been on our show before. So I saw your new episode. <laughs> I was like, that sounds familiar. Let me check the author because I know you read a lot of short stories from authors. And it said VP Morris. So I was like, no fucking way. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So fun, small world. It was awesome. It's Exit 13 for, for anyone who is interested to listen to my short story on Shelby's podcast. So right now I don't have any new books out, but I did just sell the audio rights to Shadowcast, which is my first dark thriller. I don't have any information yeah. um, about like distribution or date. It's most likely end of March, early April it will be out. But if you like audiobooks and dark thrillers, keep an eye out for that. I'm also working on my own podcast that could come out in about maybe the summertime, June, July, about women in horror, but I will really least more information as that gets closer just keep an eye out for for that to show up soonish awesome yeah and your two full-length novels are shadowcast and dead ringer i've read shadowcast yes. i have dead ringer it's in my ever-growing stack of stuff i need to read but my toddler won't let me yep yep both available on amazon and and barnes and noble and then you have uh the three kindle short reads mm-hmm. exit yes. 13 being one that shelby mm-hmm. you read on scary to yes. sleep podcast yeah. hell yeah and shelby how's everything going with your podcast and your work It's going great. I have some new stuff coming out soon. Actually, by the time this episode comes out, I'm starting a Screambox podcast with some of my fellow bloody disgusting people where we talk about movies on Screambox. Yeah. And that's right. Because like uh, last time, I think you had just gotten on Bloody Disgusting. I think I had. Yeah. Yeah. And now you're you're on there full time. So that's great. I am. Yeah. I'm creating new projects for myself to do. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's better than not having enough to do. So Oh, Definitely. I've done this all to myself. Yeah. Yeah. The more you can get all over that website, the better for sure. The CEOs probably hate me. I'm always hounding them with like, what if we did this? And how about we if we do this? <laughs> <laughs> Look, that's good. Having ideas ready to go. Yeah. Better than just being like, cool, I'm just here waiting for work, you know? Yeah. No, that's, that's always good. Hell yeah. Cool. Well, uh, before we get into the movie that we are going to be discussing this week, let's do a quick round of recommendations. Just anything horror-related, other movies, TV shows, books, comics, video games, just whatever you want to throw out that you have consumed lately that you would like to recommend to our audience. So let's get started. Okay, V. I'll take it if you want to. Yeah, yeah. to keep it short, I recommend Allegoria, which is on Shudder right now. It is a bit of a lower budget kind of artsy film, but I loved it. It's kind of a, a story that's told backwards and it follows a bunch of different artists who are haunted 
by an evil spirit that comes out in the form of their writing or their their works. If you're a writer, the huh. thing you're writing comes to life. Or if you're a painter, the thing you paint comes to life and, and not in a pleasant form. So it's it's really interesting and, and really creepy. And it's, it's something I haven't seen before. It definitely doesn't fit the typical horror mold. So I recommend it. Allegory on Shudder. Is that the one that's kind of a horror anthology, but they're all kind of tied together? Yes. It's directed by Spider One, right? I believe so. Yeah. yeah. I feel like they're more tied together than a, an anthology because I, I, I saw it, you know, listed as such, but there's such right. a, a connecting through thread that it really, I mean, I think it reads like a movie. Yeah, that makes sense. So it's like different characters. Is Are they like in different time periods or is it all in the same area? It's all within the same two days and it starts oh, okay. at a very horrifying moment. Like the, the woman on the cover is like a screaming demon woman. So it starts with the moment around that and then it goes back to how she got that way. And it's like all within a two-day period and it's, she's an actress so it like goes back through all these artsy people that she knows like her boyfriend is a painter and his best friend is a writer and his best friend is dating a photographer and like it just keeps going back to like these people who have encountered like an evil thing in the form of their artistic expression oh starting off with a screaming demonic <laughs> your woman, favorite right? yeah. uh, biggest fear in horror movies. oh yeah. yeah you love it <laughs> <laughs> Tonally, what is this movie like? Is it fairly serious and straightforward all the way through, or is it pretty campy and like wild? I found it to be pretty serious and heavy, especially there's like a big goth poem at the end that's very like heavy. But there is this punk Asian chick who is kind of the humor in it or like the comic relief. So there are moments of someone being kind of silly and a little all over the place. But I think okay. that overall tone is dark and what the hell is happening. Okay. I remember a while ago looking up Spider One because I, I didn't really know who that was. I just saw that like directorial debut on one of the horror sites talking about this movie. And I didn't realize he is the founder and consistent member of Power Man 5000. And he's also related yes. to Rob Zombie. He's <laughs> Rob Zombie's younger sibling. Oh, a Nepo baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that all of a sudden that term has come to I the know. forefront. It's everywhere. <laughs> there will definitely be some discussion of Nepo babies in this as well, too. All right, Shelby, now it is your turn. I'm ready. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> what have you got for us? Okay, so I actually have something old and something new. Nothing borrowed or <laughs> and nothing blue. But um, so my something old is I've actually been rereading House of Leaves, which you guys have probably talked about on oh, the yeah. show before. Nice. Oh, yeah. But I have just been revisiting that. So I won't even go over it since you've probably gone over it before. But it's just in the forefront of my mind because whenever I try to read it, it's just it takes over your whole brain. But that goes hand in hand with the fact that I watched both Skinamarink and Outwaters this week, but I'll talk about Outwaters. Since Skinamarink is kind of widely available, Outwaters is not widely available yet, but okay. I got to watch it early because I got a screener. Nice. So Outwaters is a found footage movie that's going to be available on Screenbox. That's a definite plug right there. Not even going <laughs> to try to cover it up. It's basically this guy and his brother and these 
um, musical artist and a makeup artist are going to go out to the Mojave Desert to film a music video. And from there, everything goes wrong. But it's kind of the new way that I was actually talking to some people from Bloody Disgusting about this. It's this basically this new way that found footage is headed where it's a lot of disjointed images that are really disturbing that somehow create a narrative, even if you're not really sure what that narrative is. Because when you watch it, everyone can have their own interpretation of it. Basically, without giving too many spoilers, it becomes one of the goriest movies I've seen in a while. I mean, I know Terrifier 2 just came out, but it was surprisingly gory. Uh, A lot of gore, nudity, a lot of cosmic horror. In fact, one of the very first shots, so it's not a spoiler, but one of the very first shots, and I want people to notice it when they see it at home. I thought there was something wrong with my TV. Like I literally got up off my couch because I thought I had a dead pixel on my screen. And we have the worst luck with TV. Like we're always having the thing where like, you know, it's got like shadow on it or dead pixel. So I got up and I was literally tapping my TV and I have a cat. So I was like, did you get your claw (laughs) here? What is this? You know? And so I was like touching it and it stayed on the screen. And I was like, so is it dead? But it looks like it's part of the movie. It doesn't look like a dead pixel. And it comes back later because that was definitely something he put in delicately in the beginning that you could easily miss. So in the beginning, when they're interviewing the first time the um, musical artist, it's just a little white speck near her face. And like, it's just so creepy. It's a ride. I'm sure a lot of people have been hearing about Skinnamarink, even if you haven't seen it yet, where it's like, I don't even really know how to describe it to you because in order to describe it, I'd have to start describing the entire movie because I can't really give you a concept of it. So I I did that I saw a bunch of stuff about Skin of Rink uh-huh. just out of context. And I wind up reading the plot synopsis, even reading through the plot synopsis. It still doesn't make sense. Oh my God. No. Skin of Rink. I luckily stayed away from a it lot of stuff. It needs to be a visual thing. Yeah, before I saw it. And it was... It's just like Skin of Marink. I would try to, if you can, not read any synopses of it because the less you know, the more confused you are, which just adds to how unsettled you are, basically. So yeah, that's mine is The Outwaters, available on Screenbox. So I, in all honesty, I haven't seen Skin of Marink yet. That's on my list of stuff to watch. That movie, from what I hear, is very much found footage, but in the Z-lineal kind of way where instead of it feeling like oh, you found a sketchy VHS tape and you put it in and it's all staticky like VHS tapes used to be and there's lines popped in it and jump cuts and all this kind of stuff. Like It has that kind of quality. A lot of stuff now is moving to where it's, oh, this is some weird shit that you stumbled across on a dark corner of the internet and it's very lo-fi and blown out and like that. I hear Skinnamarink is that. That. And like Skinnamarink is one of those where you can't pinpoint a cameraman. Yeah. You can't even really pinpoint where the camera is. It's very surreal in that way, yeah. Outwaters is a little more traditional Blair Witch where it is a man with a camera. He's kind of just videoing his their journey to like go film this music video and you even get parts like little pieces of the music video too that have no music because they never got to finish it and like of you know beautiful shots of this beautiful woman walking through a desert in a flowy dress are like kind of interspersed and they're going to be camping out there too because they want a few days to film this music video and get the right light. But yeah Outwaters it was amazing. It's definitely going to be divisive. It's going to be a love it or hate it. 
I mean, honestly, I can't wait for you guys to see it. Once you see it, I would love to either come back on or just let me know when that episode is coming out so I can hear what you yeah. think of it. Well, and, and to go back to Skinnamarink, too, because we are flying a little bit through these recommendations, so we can kind of talk about both. Skinnamarink feels like a Gen Z childhood nightmare, but then also like what if you took a creepypasta that's kind of unknowable and actually made it into a movie somehow? It's true. Skinnamarink got to me. It was honestly the most unsettling movie I think I've ever seen personally. Of course, not everyone's going to feel that way, but it's, it was the most unique film going experience I've ever had. I would recommend if you can to see it in a theater because the sound design, I think, is the most genius part of the whole movie. And if I had watched it at home, I think the sound design is going to suffer in the home viewing experience. My husband and I were talking about that when we got out. I was like, if we would watch this at home, I definitely would have turned down the volume at first thinking, oh, it's just a little loud when it was designed to be jarring and loud. Like the sound is probably almost a bigger part than the visuals, to be honest. And seeing it in theaters, once it was over, I've never seen an entire theater of people freeze. Like we were all frozen (laughs) in our seats. And then this one woman near the front row turned around and was like, did you guys like that? And then this one woman goes, I was terrified. I don't know. And everybody was like, yeah, it was fun. It was such a great movie going experience. Like at one point, this guy kind of adjusted in his seat and he had a, like a leather jacket on and it made this sound and all of us jumped. Like we thought it was part of the movie and it, and he kind of like turned like, sorry. Sorry. Like, we were all on edge so much. And then when we got out of the theater into the lobby, everyone like milled around in the lobby talking about the movie. And I've never seen that in my life, other than for like cult classics, when you go and you're all fans of the movie already and you're all ready to talk about it. Not for something new, though. This was really interesting to see. It was definitely interesting. It's definitely affected my nightmares, which I don't usually have, but it's sunk into my brain, basically. That's awesome because I think the only experience I've ever had like that with a, a movie where I could feel the energy change as it went. And it wasn't even a horror movie. It was Mad Max Fury Road. Oh, yeah. And I went to go see it three or four weeks in its release. Like when it was empty theaters at that point, I went for like a 10 p.m. showing on like a Tuesday. And it was like me and 20 other people in the entire theater. And we all vibed with this movie in a way that we didn't realize we were going to. We all wanted to sit in the lobby and talk about it yeah. at like 1 a.m. And we came out of it. But it also reminds me a little bit of your experience is Aaron going to see The Witch and then going to see Get Out in theater where you were saying with The Witch by the ending everyone was just kind of like in silence and then the part in Get Out when he first enters the sunken place and like the bass drops and like everybody in the theater just being like what the fuck are we watching yeah kind of moment <laughs> that's how yeah. this was yeah yeah definitely but uh kind of to that point with the, the skinnering because this is sort of on that same level in terms of like and it is done by a gen z creator and this is like my first recommendation i'll, I'll just go into mine if do you have anything else you want to say shelby nope aaron this is kind of going back to something we talked about or you really talked about a lot was the back rooms but i want to okay. specifically talk about cane pixels that is related to some skin and marink shit. Yeah. 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 I wanted to talk about Kane Pixel's YouTube videos of the backrooms, which he is putting out still. And like the last one came out like three or four weeks ago. That's I didn't realize they're still coming out. That's crazy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's he has 18 videos, I think, on his YouTube channel right now. This kid is only 17 years old and he's putting out these backrooms videos. Like this is the best adaptation of the backrooms I have found on the Internet, period. And if you're curious what the backrooms are, it's a creepypasta. Just look up the backrooms and read it yourself. We spent a whole episode already in our recommendations 
Jason's talked about it, but Kane Pixels puts out these videos which are like archival footage of a company, like a shady company who wants to tap the backrooms for storage purposes to like sell storage to the world, basically, like infinite storage. You know, shady company doing shady scientific research into this. Oops, we opened a portal into the back rooms that we kind of can't close now, but we're going to go like mine it for its resources. Oh, by the way, there's this unknowable monster stalking the halls that we have no idea like what it is and why it's there. And it can mimic people's voices and it's kind of unknowable. I think only have like three of his videos left, but I watched through most of them. Shelby and Aaron, you said this with the skin rink. It's very lo-fi. It's very like Gen Z feeling, but there's also this whole 90s aesthetic to everything because it all like all these videos are from like 1990, 1991. In fiction, they are at least. It hits all those horror beats that I love of just like slow build, dreading. It's kind of up to your interpretation at certain points because like some of the videos are just more like artistic, experimental, like glitch pop sort of shit. And then you throw in like the aesthetics, you throw in this unknowable monster. The jump scares, they're not too many, but the ones that they have are terrifying, but also well earned. It's fantastic. His whole entire video series on the backrooms, I can't recommend enough. Hell yeah. That's amazing. I can't get enough of the backrooms stuff i know it's kind of getting overplayed it was just so well done i love it like i know it it might be getting overplayed now because i think everyone's sort of now aware of it it seems like in the last couple of months that has kind of broken into more of a mainstream kind of thing that more people Mm -hmm. are aware of now so i'm curious to see does it get picked up and the whole idea gets taken further to a next level or does it just kind of get driven into the ground Mm -hmm. i don't know i guess it just depends on who gets their hands on it and who feels passionate about pursuing that idea i mean kane pixels is the best example i've found and he's doing a phenomenal job and the dude's only 17 so keep up the good work yeah hell yeah but uh the big recommendation i had besides that is a video game i know everyone is telling me i need to play god of war ragnarok i will i just need to find time to devote to that so instead i started playing marvel's midnight suns which is a game i can like pick up and put down i feel a lot easier than other more narrative focused games although there is a heavy narrative to this game too but it's made by the XCOM people it's a tactical action RPG starring some of your favorite Marvel heroes but it has a very supernatural twist to it because you create your own character called the Hunter and the Hunter is the son or daughter child of the mother of demons Lilith Hydra has resurrected the mother of demons Lilith in order for her to awaken Cthulhu, which is like Cthulhu in Marvel basically so the Midnight Suns is the supernatural team Blade, Nico, the Blood Witch from the Runaways, Magic from the X-Men, who is the ruler of Limbo, the current Ghost Rider, Robbie Ramirez. I think that's his name. I always forget what his actual name Pretty is. Pretty sure it's Robbie Reyes. Robbie Reyes, yes. It's Robbie Reyes, who's the current Ghost Rider. They basically reawaken the Hunter because the Hunter was the only one who killed Lilith last time. The thing that's kind of odd is there does feel like there's a little bit of MCU popularity influence on this game. And that's, I think, where the game fails a little bit because on one hand, everything you're facing is all supernatural. And you're at this place called the Abbey, which is like this pocket universe for witches where like sure. everything supernatural you can think of exists. But my understanding, too, is like one of the characters is Wolverine. One of the characters is Spider-Man. It's like all these mainstream characters mainstream are characters, right? part of that group. Yeah. And for the first couple hours, it's really awkward and kind of doesn't work because it also is very quippy. And that was starting to get on my nerves. But where the game really clicked for me is and this is not really giving way too many spoilers 
spoilers because it happens so early on. You're attacked by Venom, but Venom is demonically possessed by Lilith. So not only is Venom like symbiote hulking massive already like cannibalistic goo monster, but now it's demonic too. And that's when Spider-Man like joins your team. And that's where it actually started coming together for me because like I appreciated all the supernatural stuff. And while I was kind of annoyed that they like shoehorned in, I felt like some of the Avengers, it started working because there's a lot of dynamics between like the Avengers thinking they this is their game. Like, oh, we've saved the world so many times. We know what we're doing, but they keep failing and the cast-offs who are like the midnight suns like the supernatural team are like we're the ones who were put together for this very thing why aren't you listening to us sure there slowly becomes these really interesting dynamics of the team finally coming together the game's not scary but it has a lot of horror elements obviously lilith herself her character design in this game is fucking rad most of the demonic stuff in this game is more like metal album art instead of like demonic horror movie looking there are a couple things you fight that are a little disturbing but nothing like crazy but it's a really good game for horror adjacent and honestly it's fun as fuck the combat is so fun if you've played XCOM you kind of know what you're getting into but this does enough stuff that's different from the XCOM games and I feel like it's even more approachable than the XCOM games magic in this game and Nico in this game fucking rule I think they might be my two favorite in combat that's one of the only things that makes me excited about the game because magic is absolutely one of my favorite X-Men characters if you like magic this game does just because she's also a pretty pivotal role throughout the story but like they do a great job of making every single hero feel so different from each other but none of them feel useless which is fucking impressive because the roster on this is is pretty big i think my least favorite to use is dr strange but even he is kind of fun in his own way but yeah magic nico blade and maybe wolverine are like my favorite people to use in combat but everyone everyone has their uses like i said the horror is more like 80s metal album artwork kind of demonic and more rad looking but i mean the game opens with iron man and dr strange meeting johnny blaze the original Ghost Rider, in like a fucking like old west style looking graveyard and then you're they're attacked by demons and like that's the tutorial fight at the beginning of the game so there is you know there's a lot of horror elements to it but yeah i'm, I'm having a blast with it i'm over halfway through it it's a pretty hefty game but you can also speed through it at your own pace which is nice and even though yeah it's goofy that like spider-man shows up it is the same voice actor from the marvel spider-man games so it felt like oh he's here now okay, so like so there's some con- continuity there yeah i've enjoyed it it is a game that is much better than i was expecting it to be and like i said if you can just get past like the mcu influence of like the quippiness and all that in the beginning the story actually goes kind of hard it starts getting darker and betrayals happen and shit goes wrong it does follow more the comics lore, I think, than the MCU lore, even though it borrows some of the MCU-ness from uh, specifically the Avengers characters. Sure. But it is more faithful, I feel, to the comics. And honestly, it also builds its own lore. Like, the Scarlet Witch in this game and Agatha in this game are very different than the Scarlet Witch and Agatha in the comics and are very different from the Scarlet Witch and Agatha in the MCU. So, yeah. Okay. Use magic. Cool. She's fucking good in this game. Yeah, that's something that... I might check out later down the road. I was kind of looking forward to it. And Katie, she mentioned that she knew a lot of people from that that were in the Resident Evil games with her. And uh, all the acting in those games was pretty solid. So cool. Well, uh, I will wrap this up by recommending Luca Guadagnino's Bones and All. I don't want to hurt anybody. Famous last words. Are there lots of us? I don't actually meet many others. Why'd you offer to bring me along? You seem nice. I am nice. 
thought you might be hungry. For hens? No. Who lives here? Is there someone dead up there? I'm not gonna be like that. We don't have many options. Either you eat, you off yourself, or you lock yourself up in there. We're dangerous. One of us? Jake's teach me how to smell other eaters. <laughs> but we can hurt one another just as bad. Business. You don't think I'm a bad person. All I think is that I love you. Heather and I just caught up with that one. Didn't get a chance to go see it while it was in theaters. For those who are unaware, this is what was kind of mismarketed as a like YA romance starring Taylor Russell and Timothy Chalamet. That's what I thought. Even the poster looks like really romance novel. So <laughs> it is, but add in like a giant massive heaping of cannibalism it's basically that it's terrence malick's badlands which that's the movie it's being most compared to it's got a little bit of near dark in it it definitely has you know a lot of the melodrama in it is good i will say heather showed me a tweet after we watched it that was like bones and all is titanic for weird people and that's (laughs) very apt (laughs) so yeah i mean this is based on a Camille DeAngelis novel who to my understanding like is a YA author this is a YA book this is definitely not necessarily a YA movie I will say the violence in this movie is very extreme and bothersome this is directed by Luca Guadagnino who did Call Me By Your Name and A Bigger Splash and the remake of Suspiria which I am a huge fan I know that movie was very very I liked that polarizing. too. I liked the remake. Yeah, I know mm-hmm. that was very polarizing when it came out. I dug it a lot. I, I really, really like it, despite it being as long as it is. I like that he took the idea and ran in a very different direction with it. So it stands alone compared to the original Argento one. It's, yes. it's a completely different beast. But there's so much stuff that I love about that movie. This feels a lot of a piece. This is just the more Americana, nostalgia, middle America kind of take on this. This idea, like I mentioned, Taylor Russell is the lead character. She's been in the Escape Room movies and Waves. She, let's just say, has an encounter that goes very wrong in the beginning of the movie. And that causes her to have to, like, leave her home and her school and just ditch everything and get out of town and never come back. On the road, she then bumps into other people, and those other people, let's say, are kind of of her newfound tribe. Mm. I mean, I'll I'll just say it, I guess, because again, the marketing has not done this movie any favors. It's 
cannibal shit, right? Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because you bump into like, okay, Timothy Chalamet is also another cannibal that she kind of falls in with. Mark Rylance from Dunkirk and Bridge of Spies is also in this movie in a very odd performance. I was going to say, he's always pretty off the wall, so I'm excited to see his performance. Yes. So the thing I'll say is this. Michael Stuhlberg from Boardwalk Empire and mm-hmm. all kinds of other stuff, he also shows up. Also another weird cannibal. <laughs> One of the best weird cameos of the entire year, David Gordon Green, the fucking director, one of the co-creators of Eastbound and Down and The Righteous Gemstones, and the director of like all the new Halloween movies. He has a very interesting cameo in this as well, too. And then there's some people that Guadagnino's worked with before who show up and like are in the movie maybe five minutes, but give a fucking electrifying five minutes like chloe savini's in this movie what had no idea wow. yeah jessica harper from the original suspiria is in yeah. this movie she has a small role in the suspiria remake playing a different type of character yes. she shows up in this as well so what i'll say performance wise is this Taylor Russell is fucking incredible. I have never seen her in anything. I, I haven't seen the Escape Room movies. I haven't seen Waves. Mm. She is fucking incredible. She is so naturalistic, affecting, and just you really buy her in her position where she is. Everybody else in this movie, though, is playing a character, like you said. Mark Rylance is, boy oh boy, he is a character. <laughs> he is playing 211 with every weird nuance you can imagine for this type of character. Michael Stuhlberg, same thing. So like all the supporting people are definitely heightened in a way that I find to be interesting. I know that has been a common criticism of the movie is Mark Rylance is just too much. His performance is the one thing that throws me off because he's just too big in the movie or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I think that's kind of true of of all the supporting cast. Taylor Russell's really the only person that seems grounded, but that helps when this is literally a like tragic road trip through America romance set in the 80s about cannibals. You know, like you got to yeah. have somebody that kind of centers that a little bit. Trenton Atticus do the score for this one, which this is like their fucking third score from this past year. (laughs) Did they get a Grammy and an Academy again? We'll see. (laughs) We'll we'll find out if they get any nominations. But uh, I really love the soundtrack of this one. Again, I, I like that for how much Trent Reznor stuff sounds similar. If you're a big fan of Nine Inch Nails, Mm -hmm. everything does kind of sound the same after a point. I think his scores are pretty amazing. And the work that he's doing with Atticus Ross is pretty cool because every score has its own feeling. They all feel completely different from each other. And where there is some tonal similarities and some themes that kind of run through all of them, you can't take Gone Girl's very weird calm spa music from hell kind of soundtrack (gasps) and put that up against the girl with the dragon tattoos like really fucking aggressive tonal dissonant soundtrack or put them up against this soundtrack which is very calm and beautiful and folksy and has like really good just quiet guitar shit in it and then kind of has that slow building dread and then like that one off note when the conversation with that character takes a left turn it's great that's amazing I absolutely loved it the cinematography in this movie was incredible (laughs) the other description I heard of the movie that's very apt is this feels like 
an 80s Stephen King adaptation that like never happened. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> that's also <laughs> very apt. So yeah, I would definitely recommend people check this one out. It is available to stream now, although I don't think it is free on anything just yet. Hell, there might be some places in the country where it's still available, which that's been a problem. We now live in fucking Washington, D.C., and all these big awards movies, if they come here, they're in like three of the 20 movie theaters in this area and they're there yeah. for like a week and then they might come back a week later at three different theaters like there's no consistency to the mm -hmm. way that any of these major movies this year have been released honestly it's the same here in la too yeah yeah it's yeah all over the place i don't know what the hell the studios have been doing this year so what blows my mind and this is kind of going back to the skin and rank after reading that plot synopsis i am blown away that that movie even made it into any theaters and you'll know what yeah. i'm talking about like when you experience it for what it is because it really is an experiment but the other thing i, I want to ask you and i'm going to kind of quote henry from last podcast uh when i call him timothy shamalong and ding dong because i am not <laughs> pronouncing alice's name i noticed you didn't really bring up his performance at all is he like channeling his no, he's good. He's good. I think it's just kind of a given to be like, he's fine. He does the work that he's expected to. He is good. I think the character that he plays is very interesting. There is a lot more nuance to his character that I find to be kind of realistic to what we know about. Let's just say, I guess, real life spree killers traveling killers because like whatever you want to label them as but people who just kind of live that lifestyle it seems to be that they like really pulled a lot of those kind of details either he did either Camila DeAngelis and it's also that came from the novel or Guadagnino did I don't know but his character is very interesting hmm. some questioning to like his sexuality in the movie there's a little bit of questioning to like whether or not he's always telling the truth about certain things that he's relaying from his past hmm. So he's Paul again. He's Paul again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's Paul, Paul again. But yeah, I found him to be very interesting. And again, I think it's just one of those things where the reason I didn't mention him, I guess, is just I'm overwhelmed by how good Taylor Russell is in the movie. And then every supporting person, like I said, they show yeah. up, they do their five minutes, they blow everything else off the screen for that five minutes, and then you move on. Oh, that has me so excited. I really, really enjoyed it. Heather loved it as well, too. Definitely, like, too early to tell, I guess. Granted, everybody's been making their, like, end-of-the-year best-of list and everything else. I don't typically do that shit, but I would say this is probably on my list of favorite stuff from last year. Not just horror movies. And obviously, I bring it up on this show. This is a horror movie. The violence in this movie is pretty fucking extreme. And I had kind of heard... Oh, it, it doesn't get as crazy as you would necessarily think. But like the ending of this movie is literally fucking blood drenched. Well, which is funny because I've seen a few complaints of people saying it was too gross and that's why they didn't like it. But I think those are the people who thought it was going to be, again, the Titanic and didn't really think. I guess. You know, yeah. I don't know. And gross is a word. I mean, it's it's <laughs> visceral. It's not the like campy fun horror movie violence that you would expect from a lot of different things like this is gross it's visceral i mean like the messiness involved in mm -hmm. like eating a person 
Yeah. Right? It's that level of unsettling and kind of makes your stomach churn. But I think the movie handles all of that very well. When you think about the cannibal movies we've covered, right? There seems to be a common trend with them between like Raw, Silence of the Lambs with V, Ravenous, has a killer soundtrack that's usually a little off the wall. And it has like a lot of quiet moments and like character interaction and like the characters themselves are the driving force. And there's a lot of that in this. There's a lot of like these two characters bond and spending time together and doing like regular everyday people shit. But then at the drop of a hat, shit goes like into left yes. field. Yeah. While you were talking about the Atticus, Ross, and Trent Reznor soundtrack, I was thinking back on the Ravenous soundtrack that had fucking Damon, Damon, Damon yeah. from the Gorillas, and like that soundtrack was also bonkers. Yeah, it's interesting. Maybe people are mad because it was marketed as a romance. Even the film poster is very romantic. There was very little marketing for it, period. Like, I thought Heather was like, I haven't even heard of this fucking movie. Yeah, and I think a lot of Gen Z went to see it for Timothy Chalamet. And they were like, he looks beautiful. She looks Probably beautiful. So. Yeah. Same thing happened when they went to see Dune. And <laughs> I think they expected maybe more of a vampire type thing, you know, that's a little yeah. neater. You know, I think that's what people were expecting. And they're like, wait a second. There's that natural romanticism that comes along with the vampire whole Mm -hmm. thing, right? This is definitely not that. I mean, like, because again, this movie is, oh, we have to like kill this person in a really unclean, unsimple, complicated way that is tricky for us to potentially get out of this situation. Mm -hmm. But also we're like literally having to strip down to our underwear to like do this because it's messy and it's gross. Like there's nothing romantic about how this movie handles that aspect. I I just think it's funny because like if you look at it through a horror lens, like 2022 had fucking Terrifier 2 and X and like all these violent horror movies that were super popular. And then like to hear people complain about it but then i keep remembering like oh yeah timothy chalmain and the poster looks romantic yeah i think it got marketed accidentally to people who were not into horror necessarily or at least not body horror (laughs) yeah because i think a lot of the horror community in general has slept on this movie and this is a capital h horror movie like there's no doubt about it again this is the guy who did the suspiria remake that movie has some wild shit in it, right? It does. I'm so glad to hear you liked it. I really liked it too. Yeah, the movie as a whole like might not be somebody's bag, but like the yeah. visceral nature of that movie, there's no way you can deny that this is a horror movie for sure. So mm-hmm. Aaron and I have been open about this repeatedly. We're going to do probably a two-parter on the original Suspiria and then the remake. And then the like awesome. each episode. Yeah. I can't wait for that. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. Not to lose you guys more followers, I hated the Suspiria remake. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> but, it's yeah. wild how polarizing it yes. is. Yes. Yeah. But uh, uh, so done. Let's stop there. That's a good, perfect segue mm-hmm. into Neon D. Into D. this next divisive movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because this This movie, when it came out, had the same exact kind of reception. Still kind of does. I see 20 or 30 girls come in here every day, mostly from small towns with big dreams. And they're all good. You, you're going to be great. Beauty isn't everything. It's the only thing. She has that thing. Look at Jesse. Who wants sour milk when you can get fresh meat? I know what I look like. Women would kill to look like this. 
party or something? I guess a little bit of table setting for this movie in terms of what it is, where it came from, right? It's Nicholas Winding Refn, right? The guy who did Drive. Drive. That's what he's like most well known for at this point. By the way, I didn't like Drive either. So that was going to be my first question for you because I feel like if you don't vibe with Drive, you are not going to vibe with the Neon Demon. No. In fact, James, my husband, he's been on the show. I can just say James. But he uh, he pointed that out when I was like, I got to watch Neon Demon because I'm going to be on the show again. And he was like, do you know who the director is? And I was like, no, I don't know much about it. And he was like, hmm. Yeah, because we went and saw it and he loved Drive and I hated it. So yeah. he was like, well, have fun with that. I, I can't wait to hear what you think about it. <laughs> Thanks, James. So, <laughs> so Refn is a filmmaker that I kind of got into in late high school, early college. And Derek, you can attest to this. Oh, yeah. I, I found him around the time that the Pusher movies came out because Pusher 2 and 3 were like a huge fucking deal. So he like put out this first Pusher movie in the 90s. That was like a big like, oh, shit, this guy put out this very visceral, you know, intense underworld drug movie set in Copenhagen. Mads Mikkelsen's in it very early in his career. It was a big oh. splash. The guy was 24 when he directed it. And then he went on to do stuff like Bleeder and Fear X, and he kind of hit this roadblock where, like, Fear X flopped. Mm-hmm. He had to go back to Copenhagen and kind of start over. Pack his wooden shoes and... Yeah, just get back carve those up. wooden shoes. <laughs> There's a documentary called The Gambler that's literally about how Fear X flopped, and he was, like, five million kroner in debt. Ooh, I'd but, love like, to see that. But, like, was married, had kids, had to, like, move yeah. back to Copenhagen and start over, right? And he literally returned turned to the pusher movies and pusher two and three came out within the same year and i remember hearing about those at the time and being like okay cool these are making a big splash on the like festival circuit i'll check them out i liked them they were Mm -hmm. fine but it was kind of one of those whatever this guy does next i'll check out for sure Mm -hmm. and that was fucking bronson i'm charlie bronson i am britain's most violent prisoner Prison was honestly brilliant. I liked it personally. I fuck that. I loved it. It was exciting. It was on the edge. It was madness at its very best. Bronson. Oh, I see, I love Bronson. Bronson's good. Yeah. Loved Bronson. Yeah. Derek, you could attest. In college when that came out, I was fucking all about Bronson. I made all of our friends watch that fucking movie. That's a good movie. That was right when Tom Hardy was really fully being yeah. kind of rediscovered again. You made us watch that movie when he was cast as Bane and everyone's like, Tom Hardy's Bane. Uh-huh. And I was like, watch this movie yeah. where this dude is fucking buff as hell. Oh, yeah. Getting naked <laughs> and covering himself in like engine yeah. grease so he can be slippery. <laughs> That's exactly how it was sold to me they're like no you don't understand he's like fully naked he's like covering himself in stuff he, yeah. and wrestling people he like, fights it's dogs just him being <laughs> yeah. fucking psychotic <laughs> and like beating on prison guards yeah. right it had that kind of weird visceral intensity 
then he does Valhalla Rising, which is like mm-hmm. very opposite direction, still very arty. arty this yeah. was kind of the first like massive style over substance debate with him. It's a Viking epic that's very psychedelic with Mads Mikkelsen. And then he does Drive, and Drive is kind of that first big mainstream, very America via the gaze of a European, right? And that movie, as we all know, huge deal, is still like a big cult thing. Yeah. Even then, there's still a lot of experimental stylistic there is. aesthetic type of shit in that movie too yeah i still see that jacket places too people still buy that jacket (laughs) oh yeah oh yeah and i will get to this as we get into the movie later that's a movie that i think is massively widely still kind of misinterpreted and misunderstood along the same lines of let's just say something like a fight club or an american psycho v as we had this like same conversation with that movie i agree because i saw someone refer to it as a celebration of masculinity one time and i was like I didn't like it, but I know that's not true. <laughs> yeah, correct. Yeah. So it's one of those things where I think in that trilogy specifically, or that quadrilogy, if we really <laughs> include Bronson to Only God Forgives, he's exploring masculinity in all these movies. And then his answer was, okay, let's do Neon Demon, which goes in the complete opposite direction. Yes. And that's his last theatrical movie. He's been dabbling in TV for the last couple of years, but that's this is his last movie. Did it get a theatrical? release by the way mm. I wasn't sure yeah. yes. limited okay. I thought yeah I saw it in theaters because it's like an Amazon original now yeah that yes. they, they say it's an Amazon original so I wasn't sure and, and that's the thing like kind of going into the neon demon which I will open the floor to V because this is your choice yes. this is yes. one of your favorite horror movies but I do feel like if you don't vibe with the super stylistic choices this director makes it's kind of hard to like get into I feel like the neon demon I actually really enjoyed drive at least back when I saw it I'll save how I thought about Neon Demon. This was a pick you specifically. It wasn't just like a, oh, I would like to do that. You specifically were like, I want to do Neon Demon. So yeah, like give us your download on what this movie Mm -hmm. is to you and how you came to it and everything else. Yeah, so I came to it. I had seen Drive, but it didn't really register as anything of massive importance to me in my life. I was still in college and I was like halfway paying attention to it late one night. So I barely remember it and it did not like affect me choosing Neon Demon. Like when I went to go like, I want to watch this movie the first time I saw it when it first came out. I just was like, this looks interesting. And the reason why I love it so much is because it talks about the downsides or the really like toxic traits that come out of putting beauty as the number one important factor for women sure and that sort of making it a both financial and a social capital like it's something that is being exchanged in this movie for money essentially or for fame and i think it's it doesn't get discussed a lot you know obviously there are some movies that talk about the downsides of fame like you know it's it's just very common to obviously hear stories about that but it to be specifically about beauty and to have males be background it's not about really their gaze on women of course they still play a factor and they're still really creepy at at points in this but it's all about how women can sometimes tear each other down in pursuit of being the most beautiful or the most like sought after person especially when it comes to anything in the entertainment field so something i noticed with this movie People have summarized David Lynch's movies as a woman in trouble. And that's the simple like phrase that kind of describes a lot of his work. And I feel like the Neon Demon is kind of the same way because I felt 
elements of Mahalan Drive. Definitely. It's like if you took Mahalan Drive and I guess the Devil Wears Prada and like kind of mashed them together. I thought of the Devil Wears Prada the whole time, yeah, honestly. And kind of mashed them together in like the backdrop of a horror movie that kind of has elements. I'd, let's talk about more table setting before I get into like the elements of this because I don't want to spoil right at the bat in case there are people out there who want to stop and go watch the movie and then come back. So Shelby, let's throw it to you. It sounds like you didn't have a positive view of this movie, but I'd be curious your initial thoughts on it. What's funny though, I did want to say that I have read that the director's wife doesn't like most of his movies, which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> she did like this one, but apparently she hates most of his movies. And I just thought that was kind of funny. <laughs> I was like, girl, same. Even your wife doesn't vibe with some of your stuff. <laughs> so I, it's okay. So um, right off the bat, one thing that just irked me, because I thought it was visually stunning. I think the visuals in Drive were beautiful. I think this was the most one of the most beautiful movies I've seen. That opening shot, stunning. Absolutely gorgeous. The way he plays with lighting, transcendent. It's basically, to me, it was like watching a perfume commercial. And I, I mean that as a compliment where perfume commercials feel like you're in a, a different dimension, yeah. really. Yeah. And you're there is no camera. You're just floating around and you're kind of a fly on the wall watching this beautiful people be beautiful for some weird reason. And you don't really know why they're being beautiful. <laughs> I described my notes as ethereal neon. Yes. So I think the problem I had right off the bat, and look, I don't want to take anything away from her. She's her own person. She can make her own decisions. But Elle Fanning was actually 16 when this movie was made. Yeah. And I think a big problem I had with it was the irony in him trying to show how young women are being exploited by exploiting an actual young women woman. I feel like they could have used an adult actress to play this role with a little more forethought, a little more thinking into especially the scenes where she's caressing her breasts in a negligee and knowing she was actually 16. I just could not get past the fact that this director thought it was okay to do that and put her in that position and put us as the audience in this position to watch this very sexual thing, to watch the painting scene with the Terry Richardson-esque photographer. And I think it's because, to be honest, I'm a little closer to a lot of these situations. I've been on a lot of sets. I've been in really ugly situations in Hollywood and things. I'm not a supermodel. I'm not a model at all. But I have been in these types of situations with acting and things. Yeah. I think just going into it, I had that bias of, ugh, why did we choose the actual 16-year-old? Why did we make every single female character, and this is not even into the movie, this is right off the bat, the most narcissistic horrible, jealous women you've ever seen. And that was the baseline for women in general in the whole movie, because these are the only women we meet. And I think we'll get to it later. But overall, the men, I did enjoy that they were background characters. I liked that aspect. But in the end, none of them actually did anything to hurt any of these women worse than the women hurt themselves. And I felt like it was too much of a like, women tear themselves down. Men can be assholes, and they're kind of creepy. But who's the one sexually assaulted? Jesse, who's the one actually trying to ruin her career? You know, it's not the men, it's the women. And so, okay, I'm going to stop talking. Yeah. I'm just Go ahead. There <laughs> is an interesting spectrum of violence that happens in this movie, meaning like one common thing I have heard, and this is specifically, and I guess just let's get into spoilers, whatever, we're an hour into this. <laughs> yeah, the scene true. where the photographer, Mark, chooses to do the like close set. 
And yes. for anybody that's been in any kind of situation with any kind of photography, filming, anything, that's always like a weird red flag, right? Especially when it's the director and one individual that's always a red flag. Yeah, especially when it's not asked for by the subject. It's asked for by Correct. the director. Yeah. And negotiated beforehand. Exactly. Yeah. It's one of those things where like a response I have heard is, but nothing happened. At least mm-hmm. he didn't rape her, but like nothing actually w- went on on whatever there is like still a spectrum of violence that occurs in this movie throughout the entire cast and you know i think the three lead guys in this Mm. you know we have jack's the photographer that's who i was trying to think of a second mark he's this terry richards-esque photographer like you mentioned we have hank played by keanu reeves and this was kind of when he was trying to figure out what he was doing with his career at that point which was clear from his performance i have to be honest I will say, I don't buy Keanu being a sleazy motel dirtbag, no. possible rapist. Like. The trivia bragged about how he improv that line that 2014 got to be seen. And I was like, but it wasn't a good line. He probably shouldn't have. I don't know. He's too handsome. He's too handsome. And too, he doesn't do sleazy very well. He just doesn't. No, I'll like, jump in right there. And I'll say like the handsome argument is something that overall in this entire movie, I don't necessarily buy into because it's also trying to say the same exact thing. Yeah female characters that well because you're this young girl and you know that you're pretty you wield that like a weapon and therefore you are dangerous and like that's not the most you know forthright or genuine take on that either but again we've got hank Mm -hmm. and then dean who is like the third character he is kind of the like aspiring photographer yeah sorry that was one of my problems too was that dean was basically the good guy of the movie and the fact that he made a man like the good guy yeah None of the women were. Only one person was good, and it was this man. Well, hell, I wouldn't even consider him good either. See, I wouldn't either. I guess maybe like neutral-ish. I found him pretty good-ish, though. So I compared Dean to the uh, the friend in It Follows. Ooh. The one who like yes. wants to hook up with her. Yes. That's actually, yeah. He is good guy TM. Yes. He's very much trying to kind of be like, well, I'm not creepy like those other guys. Well, I don't try to take advantage of you. I'm the good guy i'm the guy that you can like feel secure with and i'm yeah. gonna like be your protector and be your white knight and it's like she's not asking for that's any a good of perspective i hadn't you. thought of yeah so one of the things that i wrote is all the men want something different from her but in the end they all want the same thing mm-hmm. they're just following different paths to get there basically and they also represent again this spectrum of violence yeah like, again violence is not just physical right i don't think there's a single good character in this movie that was what i took away as like everybody mm-hmm. sure is yeah. like in this machine. Yeah, even like Christina Hendricks. Yeah. Her little cameo was yeah. awful. The only good person in this is Mikey, aka Skinny Pete from Breaking Bad. Because <laughs> at least he showed up with the bat to go beat he the did. mountain lion. <laughs> He might have been the one that raped the girl in the hotel room. Okay, true. So anyway, you've got, again, this spectrum of violence where, like, the whole argument about, like, well, at least he didn't rape her. Like, somehow that's the absolute worst end of that spectrum, and it's on that end of the spectrum, right? Violence is in a variety of different ways, right? So, I mean, Jack, the photographer, is very much the, like, psychological violence. You know, he just plays fucking head games with her, and he just power trips, Mm -hmm. and he just plays the girls against each other. Yes. But he doesn't hurt anybody, right? He never, like, actually hurts anybody. Hank, Keanu Reeves, is very much the physical side of that violence. We see he has a temper. He is fucking angry. You know, we have the weird, is it a dream, is it not moment with the knife. 
knife. And then yeah. we have Dean, who is the emotional violence, right? Like he That's is true. the nice guy yeah. TM. He is the like, I'm just going to bug you and wear you down kind of thing. I'm going to guilt trip you. I'm going to like pressure you, but I'm the good guy. I'm not actually doing anything bad. You know, even the scene where he leaves the restaurant, it could be seen as she was the one being bitchy, but he didn't take the time to get her out of that situation or explain to her why that might be a bad situation. And he folds like a tent too. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, he's largely in a and he just literally dissolves out of this movie never to be seen again. And to V's point, to kind of juxtapose some of this, and Shelby, to your point, sorry, and this conversation's like kind of big and spread out. And it as is. much as people are like, nothing happens in this movie. No, this movie has a lot to talk about. A lot yeah. happens in this <laughs> movie. I just don't think it's subtext. Uh, yeah, I will. a lot happens. There's a lot said, definitely. So to contrast that, we then go to the female side of this cast. And as much as I also don't necessarily buy how everyone is so immediately enamored with Jesse and how Sarah and Gigi, who are these like seasoned models, seemingly mm. just fucking fold and are, you know, reduced to puddles as soon as she's on the scene. I also don't necessarily buy the idea idea that again the trope of like pretty young girls being dangerous like it's mm-hmm. it's one of those things where like especially in this movie in the context of this movie where it posits that Jesse, Sarah and Gigi are somehow inherently more dangerous than any three of these male characters is kind of wild it reads to me like someone misinterpreted when they read Lolita and thought yeah this Humbert Humbert guy he was being led on by that young girl because she's a vixen and you know I actually just read that last month by the way oh, really yeah I haven't yes, read it in a while yes. that's good timing <laughs> yes it's funny that you brought that up too because Heather and I are like in the middle of going through Kubrick stuff we just saw 2001 last week we're going to see Clockwork Orange tomorrow well, doesn't Keanu even say at one point he does yeah, real Lolita shit yeah yeah real Lolita shit. and there's a song on the soundtrack called Something Lolita. There's a song yeah. that was written for the movie Something yeah. Lolita something. Yeah. There is a lot of Kubrick in this movie overall. Yes. Visually, everything else. I, yeah, yeah, there was. Mm. Red Rum. Definitely like interesting connections I, there. I caught a few of those. But yeah, the, the idea that a 16-year-old girl who is pretty and self-aware of that is somehow inherently just more of a threat. And a bad thing. Especially like to other women is kind of disingenuous in a weird way, I guess. And it's definitely something that that's a little too male gazy, I guess, or like male brain interpretation of what these female characters are should be like it's a very i was a sad bastard man and i'm writing my impression of a 16 year old girl yeah it's kind of weird in that sense that i'm not sure how to square that i really enjoyed abby lee's performance though as sarah by the way oh she's great she's my like standout for this movie fantastic she was in old i don't know if everyone saw old but i thought she was awesome in old too i think she's such an underrated actress old the movie about the beach that makes you old <laughs> yes yes real quick because i'll i'll kind of throw out my main idea and i want to bring it back to uv to talk a little bit more aaron you, you told me ahead of time to watch this movie on the biggest screen i could find as loud as i could yes 
And I took you up. My time is limited with the toddler. But when she was at daycare, I closed the blinds. I made it as dark as I could. I watched it on my big screen TV, turned up the volume. And I'm glad you did that because like Shelby, you said, visually, this is possibly the most stunning movie we've covered on our podcast. And then I would even say the sound design is also fucking incredible in this. It is. It's very good. And I do vibe with Cliff Martinez, who did the soundtrack for this. He did the soundtrack for Drive. Yeah. This whole movie feels like aesthetic TM the horror movie. <laughs> and on the surface, that's what it feels like. But in a good way. In a very I good way. Yeah. Yes. That's, in that's a very the good thing way. that no matter how you feel about the story of this movie, everybody like is 100% undeniable about oh, yeah. it fucking rocks visually. The colors alone. I cannot believe the director yeah. is colorblind. That blew yeah. me yeah. away when I found that out because the colors, ugh. Here's where I, what I took out of this. I watched this movie and instantly had no idea what I thought about it. I couldn't commit to liking or hating it, but the thing is it stuck with me, and this is a movie I would love to revisit and try and catch smaller details. Mm. Yeah, it sticks in your head in a way that three years from now, you're going to remember yeah, it's going to remind you of something from this and it's going to stick in your head. Yeah, yeah. the first instinct I had because I watched it by myself too, Derek, and I was like, I want to watch this with someone now. Yeah, and I was so glad that I watched it this morning because I was like, I'm so glad I get to go talk about this right now because I had the same thing where like I didn't vibe with it that much. I was pretty I had my issues with it, but I was like, there's a lot I need to discuss. I need to hear yes. other people's opinions on some stuff. And I still don't know how I feel about it, but I am leaning more towards liking it. Shelby, I feel like you and I are in the middle. You're maybe leaning a little more towards disliking it right now and i'm leaning a little more towards liking it yeah whereas v and aaron aaron i think you like it v you love it Mm -hmm. and i'm glad we all have these viewpoints i have issues with the story but the performances like all the other aspects of it i'm generally down with yeah other than keanu i did not like his performance at all but here's like the two things that i took away from this movie and i think a lot of this is purposeful as well i think the casting of her when she was 16 portraying a 16 year old was that kind of art house horror movie on purpose kind of thing he did but the thing is she wasn't his first choice he d- was going to hire Correct. an adult actress he oh, was going to hire either evan rachel wood or carrie mulligan carrie and carrie mulligan, mulligan had yeah. scheduling issues well that fucks so my whole thing. argument down <laughs> so i think a lot of my issues about the movie honestly come from his directing style i think he's a very irresponsible director and there's other things i had there are other instances i want to talk about as we go on but i think just having been someone who's been on sets before and been around these types of people and these types of directors I can see what type of director he probably is in person and I think a lot of what he does is irresponsible when it comes to his subjects and it's matter over subject to him and I think that's what I have a lot of my problems are coming from that's what I'm getting to is I feel like the movie itself was more important to him than anything else rather than like who's involved and how they get there I listened to the commentary yeah. Yeah. Is that <laughs> that's like, true? Are that's, we accurate? that's basically okay. all the commentary is is just him kind of navel gazing about like, oh yeah, here's how it did this, here's how it did this, here's how it did this. Yeah, it does it does feel like shoegazy about it. But then my second thing about this movie, and this is where I find it ultimately fascinating. And Shelby, you could probably relate to this because you live there and I see this through the lens of my sister who lives in LA. Mm. This truly felt like an LA horror movie. And what I mean by that is it was so like blissfully aware of its own vapid decadence while both kind of mocking it but also reveling in it in a weird way it's over embracing of art house horror with like all the glamour and glitz of 
Hollywood is there, but then you have the ultimate backdrop of bloody Hollywood horror. This is a town built on like literal broken dreams and dead bodies and all of that. And it it just felt like the ultimate LA horror movie in a weird way, like both good and bad to me. And I know it deals with the fashion. Uh, I know it's this is more mm-hmm. with fashion models, but I feel like this could be also applied to most entertainment industries in LA. That's where like I did vibe with the movie is even if it is kind of hitting you over the head with it in We Rise, and maybe like you were saying, Shelby, with the director not handling it in the best ways, I do think it is this demonic reflection, even if we want to go literal, of that spirit of Hollywood instead of like, it's the movie magic. Look how great and dazzling it is and what it really is on the scummy side of things. You know, what's so funny. I am so glad you say that because Aaron, I'm so glad you explained that he flopped for a while and had to like go back to Copenhagen because it read to me like someone who had been chewed up and spit out by Hollywood and had a lot of shit to say about it because some of the references to like she was like, oh, I'm at a hotel in Pasadena. Pasadena is like a rich area. Like it's a richer area, not the whole place, but like it's a wealthier area. And so it was like kind of a weird if you were actually like from LA, you would say like Van Nuys or North Hollywood, you wouldn't say Pasadena. So it was kind of like a weird yeah th- th- this is very nitpicky this is me being very nitpicky as someone who's lived here for forever but also it clearly came from someone who had had their own dreams crushed and maybe felt like someone had actually consumed them and made them disappear for a while and then came back and decided i need to say something about hollywood but it would be too on the nose if i made this about a director who <laughs> was making a movie so let's tackle the fashion world whilst also having more female leads yeah that's what it seemed like to me it was a very it reminds me a lot of the people I've met here who end up having to go home because their dreams didn't really work out and then they write a script similar to this that is let's talk about how bad Hollywood is you know Hollywood is bad I've had a lot of terrible experiences here but I could see that and hearing that he had his flop era for a while makes a lot of sense when it comes to seeing this movie and its interpretation of any industry in LA like you said Derek like any industry well really that also may kind of in a weird way contribute to why the parts of this movie that turn off for you because I only have the eyes through the people I know that are like you and my sister mm-hmm. I, I don't actually live there so to see this from the outsider perspective because you know true crime I hear all the stories yeah. that's kind of where I'm approaching it and there is a lot of oh this is what LA is right even though I, it's not fair because I don't actually live there but V like going back to you like have you encountered that this is the reaction that most people have for the neon demon whenever you bring it up or have talked about it that it's just all over the board. Yeah, especially if I'm talking to someone who is not a normal horror fan, they only bring up the cannibalism and the famous morgue scene. (laughs) And that instantly is, if I say I like it, they're like, you like that? And I'm like, no, clearly I don't like that. Oh, it's funny. You can tell we're all horror fans because we haven't even brought up the morgue scene. (laughs) Or just the eyeball regurgitation. Like that's what horror newbies or people who are just not in the genre frequently tend to harp on. I care about the like undercurrents and like the symbolism and the plot going on yeah I don't care about oh there was a creepy scene because I mean there's I watch things with creepy scenes all of the time but I saw it less because I noticed from the very beginning with the red rum reference to me that was Mm -hmm. kind of like a little hint that this is not going to be just a word for word this is happening in real time realism young model Mm -hmm. gets discovered and then destroyed it's sort of this is a metaphor just like 
like, you know, The Shining isn't just about a family in a Colorado hotel. It's a metaphor for other things going on. So, I mean, even though it might be unrealistic that a director or a photographer who wants his 16-year-old subject to be nude alone would be less dangerous than the women around her, I saw it as more of a metaphor for even if men might be more likely to commit sexual violence against women, other women are more likely to tear them down in a reputation way, and that just manifests in the form of cannibalism on screen, but in real life it would take place in just more verbal attacks, which is just like how women tend to be negative, so like sociopathic or psychopathic women tend to not be as physically violent as men are, they tend to do things like ruin people's lives, and that's kind of what I got from this, is that there's more bullying between people of the same gender than of different genders, like just on the playground or at work, you're more likely to be bullied by a woman if you're a woman or a man if you're a man. So I, I saw what the three women are doing to Jesse isn't that they are for real in real time killing her, that they would in like real life, if this wasn't a Kubrickian nightmare, they would be spreading rumors that she slept with the director to get the part. They would be working behind the scenes to destroy her before she has a chance to blossom. Yeah. Well, you could tell too that they're also immediately interrogating her for any signs of weakness. That mm-hmm. initial scene in the bathroom, I think, is pretty interesting because... Oh, that table sets the whole movie, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. That bathroom scene. You immediately have Sarah and Gigi get introduced there. They are immediately kind of poking and prodding at Jesse to find anything. Anything that they can get under her skin about, anything that they can use against her. I mean, one of the main things that they kind of focus on is just, okay, well, who are you fucking? Surely you didn't get where you are by not fucking somebody so who are you fucking and that immediate assumption of that's how you did this is like already you know loaded and belittling and everything else oh man the gut punch line for me in this movie she says something a little slightly snarky like trying to defend herself it was Gigi. it's Gigi, yeah holy shit that was she such was talking like about a... all of her plastic plastic surgery yeah. yeah yeah is that your real nose yeah god life is so unfair Gigi just got out of the body shop. She's still a little sensitive. You had work done? (laughs) You say that like it's a bad thing. Sweet, plastics is just good grooming. Imagine going a year without brushing your teeth. I go to this guy in Beverly Hills. Andrew. Dr. Andrew. She's in love with him. (laughs) Of course I love him. Look at me. He calls me the bionic woman. Is that a compliment? I hear your parents are dead. That must be really hard for you. Which was another weird commentary on plastic surgery in this movie. I wasn't sure if it was the bad characters or was the director trying to say something. That was one thing I couldn't parse out what exactly they were trying to say about plastic surgery because it's brought up so much. I couldn't figure out what. I don't know if it was necessarily plastic surgery or just another viewpoint on the only thing that matters is beauty, no matter how you get there. And like when that guy is having his whole rant that like beauty is beauty and that's all that matters. You can't be beautiful because you fixed your face or whatever. Dean, look 
at her, you know. Jumping all the way to the end after they cannibalize her, the one who can't handle it is the one who had work done, who reached beauty, quote unquote, artificially. So she literally vomits up Jesse, vomits up the eyeball because it's like her system, her body is mm-hmm. getting rid of it because it, it was artificially made to be that way. And so because of that, her body rejects it, but Sarah, Sarah can handle it. Pops that baby right in and goes back to work. That's a model baby. If we want to start opening the door of like, who is the Neon Demon? I think there are multiple characters in Neon Demon. But I think by the end, Sarah has become the Neon Demon. I liked Sarah. I don't know why. I think it's just like that actress a lot. All, their, all the actresses did a great yeah, job. Like, they did a great job. Despite what Nicholas Reffin did mm-hmm. or the way he directed this, they all put in fucking performances. Which is interesting, too. There was another thing about they had to rewrite all of the dialogue for the women because when they everyone read the script, they were like, women don't talk this way. <laughs> And I would love to see that first script because I bet it was way nastier. It's interesting, too, because he had two female co-writers on this. Yeah. You know, one would think. So apparently after his first pass, they basically read it and they were like, women don't talk this way. And he was like, okay, rewrite it. Uh." I wonder if it had more to do with women don't talk this way versus you are like three 40 plus year olds that are writing for like 20 year olds. And that doesn't sound nice. I wonder if it's more like an age thing. It might have been. It was a very like. No short idea. little blurb that I read. So, but yeah, so like kind of where we are in this discussion, it's so all over the place. And that's what this movie is like with a lot of the reception. Even to this day, people are revisiting it because it's now been around for about six or seven years. I realized it came out in 2016 and I was like, how was there discourse around fucking every piece of media that comes out? And I don't remember anybody being upset about, like, again, the fact that Elle Fanning was 16. And I think that's incredibly wrong to have her stroking her breasts on camera as a 16 year old. And like, no one talked about it on Twitter. And I was like, yeah. oh, it was 2016. Tw- that even makes, 2016 like, was all the different. sense. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And like the thing is too about like the commentary of women tear each other down. We've gone through Weinstein already. It's not the women that are holding each other back. It's the men who are operating in the background, who are the actual ones who created the patriarchy, who are the reasons that they feel like they need to be beautiful forever, you know? Me Too happened after this movie came out, right? No, I think it happened before. Or did it happen before? No, it was 2016 was the big forefront. It started. It started then. Okay. So it was like made right before. This might be just, again, my like heterosexual male viewpoint. And maybe I'm just giving way too much credit to the director, which is Sounds like I might be after like learning some of this stuff. I took it as all of that is true. And like it, the way they show that is through like, I forget all the male characters names, but I don't either. the main fashion guy who like goes off about beauty is beauty. Yeah. I think he is the catalyst for like this entire shit show that's happening with all these. Like, yes, we are focused mm-hmm. on the women and yes, the women are tearing each other apart, but it is all the catalyst. All of them are all doing this to impress the men because of and him. the men are using them. All of them. This- the scene where they audition to walk, that single yeah. tear that Sarah has when she's not chosen, he won't even look up at her. Yeah. You know, this is not their fault. And the movie doesn't even need to outright say this, but you can tell that the males, at least the ones in charge, are facilitating all of this violence towards the women themselves on purpose because really at the end of the day they're the ones that have created this environment Mm -hmm. well and to the Kubrick of all of this that we've circled back to a couple times and there's lots of directors who are guilty of this Granted. Yeah, I, I love The Shining, but Kubrick the Man was... See, that's another good example woof. of that. Yeah, <laughs> behind the scenes was very ugly, yeah. And this, this is like a textual and a metatextual thing. 
I don't buy the entire artistic ethos that, well, you have to, like, really work for true art to be a thing. You really have to, like, suffer and, like, give your blood and your effort for, like, true art to really be a thing. And it's interesting to me that Refn as a director is kind of known for having that kind of working ethic. Kubrick is obviously one of the directors (laughs) who is, like, most known for that nowadays. Him and, like, Fincher's another good example of do the line again, do the line again, do the line again, take fucking 90 do the line again, right? God, how do you pick the right one with the? That's why it's it's all ego. There's no reason for that. You gotta have there's a good, not... good editor. Yeah, there's no reason for that. Because look at all the good directors that don't need to do that and get a performance out of their actors, you know? Yeah, and that's kind of where I was circling back around to like the actual text of this movie. You know, to all of y'all's point, the men in this movie specifically like have that whole working ethos of, mm-hmm. well, beauty comes through sacrifice sacrifice and pain and you have to like make yourself thin and pretty by not eating and giving up the things that you like and you have to spend all this time in the gym and you have to like work hard to earn Mm -hmm. beauty you know it's not just granted and yet the like juxtaposition of that irony of it is then in walks Jesse and people are literally crying tears of rapturous Mm -hmm. I've never witnessed anybody this beautiful and transcendent in my presence ever right every male in this movie kind of has that degree of I'm gonna get what I need but it's gonna come at the cost of you sacrificing things that you want and need degrading yourself Mm -hmm. putting yourself in a position that's uncomfortable like you have to sacrifice so that I get what I want the photographer has that vibe the fashion guy has that vibe every male in this kind of has that driving force and that's what it sets up you know to V's point a lot of the like women being pitted against each other mm-hmm. sorry V go ahead yeah um so Keanu I think actually some which I'm not gonna remember his name it's Keanu yeah <laughs> he's only played one character and it's just Keanu and everything when Jesse is upset and Dean is comforting her and paying off her like tab with him mm-hmm. he says to him like you better be having sex with her make sure you're getting something out of this to sort of imply that the only thing that men can get that's of value from women is sex. And I feel like it's the same for every single other male. I mean, Dean is less scummy. The director said that he's supposed to represent just the average person, not necessarily good or evil, but someone who is not completely indoctrinated by fame. Agreed. But even then. Well, the fact that the director thinks he's normal. It's still not great. Yeah. Yeah. The average male is still a piece of trash for the most part. (laughs) Yeah. So and then the other two, we have a a very famous photographer and a famous fashion director. And the thing is, they're going to be getting what they need from these women in in a business arrangement. Like he's not going to be paid for his photos if they're no model. He won't have a fashion line to show if there aren't models. They're technically his employees or, you know, an independent contractor. Mm -hmm. They're already getting something out of the relationship. And Keanu is, he's the landlord or the, whatever you call it, a motel owner. So he's getting paid by her to live there. Like the financial or whatever professional agreement has already been established. It's Mm -hmm. not like, you know, she's just completely, not that it would ever justify it, but it's not like she's just like walking all over town, leaving debts in her wake and and it's like, well, yeah. 
Yeah. Well, she's just owing us money. What what's wrong with her? It's like she's filling her end of the contract. She's a model. She showed up for work. Yeah. Like it's there's no like what are you getting out of this? They're both getting something out of it. Like they, she's been hired for a yeah. job and she completed the job. Like like what more do you need? Yeah. I'm doing what our contract says. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just clear yeah. that that all of them want more from her. And I think they're mm-hmm. also the, the ones who are fame hungry want also the status that comes with being either like sexually with or at like a girlfriend like out in public with a woman like that, even though it doesn't get mm-hmm. really explored much. I think it's clear when the photographer starts rubbing her in gold. Yeah. He's like, I want the status of being like in proximity to her. I agree. Yeah. And that seems to be the case for most characters in this movie is everybody just wants to be be near Jesse for one reason or another. Either they are hoping to like kind of ride her coattails a little bit. Ruby's a good example. They either want to like feel valued as well by being near her. Dean wants to like also kind of ride her coattails a little bit. Him and Ruby are kind of these two second raters that maybe tried to get in the industry, never made it in Ruby's case, or Dean's just never had the opportunity because he's not good enough you know so if we want to approach this movie on the literal sense he asks like oh what did she say about my photography anything and i took that part nothing (laughs) Nothing. but for ruby i think it's more than just kind of writing her coattails ruby was my favorite character in this movie and she's not a good character like as far as a person goes but no but she's fascinating she's the most fascinating fascinating to me she's the one that i felt knew the bullshit she knew like everything about this is fucked this entire industry is fucked i'm kind of over like everybody's nonsense but she's also a little bit of a hypocrite by being so involved in it and knowing everyone correct everyone wants something from jesse in this movie i do agree with that but i think what ruby wants not necessarily writing or coattails i think ruby wants to taste her beauty not necessarily take her beauty she just wants to taste the beauty and that whole scene of trying to seduce her and if we want to go even more literal ruby is the witch in this movie in some ways yes 100 percent. yeah she is the one who facilitates the supernatural ritual and i think what she is getting out of it isn't the power of beauty like Gigi and sarah she's getting like the experience of jesse herself and i think that's all she she's not trying to become like beautiful herself she's just trying to get that experience that part that's really telling to me is when sarah and Gigi are in the shower and it's really like seductive and they're washing the blood off of themselves jesse's just kind of sitting there with blank expression in the bathtub full of blood and i think she's always trying to chase that taste of beauty after they do the deed on Jesse in terms of butchering and cannibalizing her, it's kind of empty for her. But then at the end mm-hmm. of the day, she's still going through with the ritual. She's still in the moonlight, the blood mm-hmm. seeping out of her, which that whole scene was like, oh, yeah, that's like you could pull that apart in so many different ways. So many different I didn't ways. I want to try. But there's a really interesting true story about this makeup artist. And I believe it was Blake Lively who talked about how this makeup artist made her really uncomfortable because the makeup artist, um, I believe it was a man, applied her lip lipstick one day with his thumb like smeared lipstick on his thumb and applied it directly to her lips with his thumb and she said hey of course she apparently she like jerked back and was like why are you putting your finger in my mouth and he was like no no no, i do this with everyone like you're not special i know you're an a-lister but this is just something i do and she's like okay well i don't want you to do that though that's still weird and i don't want you to do it and he was so insistent ruby's character made me think of that story reminded me of that story because he apparently threw this huge fit and was basically acted like she was just being a stuck-up bitch 
you were clearly the one who was so insistent and you've created this technique and I went to makeup school. You don't need to put lipstick on your thumb and rub it on someone's lips. <laughs> yeah, that's weird. Gross. <laughs> and he had this whole thing about how it, the heat of your finger, your hand, blah, blah, blah. Your lips have heat too. Anyway, <laughs> she made up this whole thing and it was like, no one ever really discussed it. It was kind of a whatever story. Like she just said it in an interview, but it was like, this is a thing this guy has where he has gotten to where he can do A-lister's makeup and he wants to touch them in an intimate way. And this is his way to do it is using his thumb, literally touching their mouths, like a very specific part of the body, the part they act with essentially, and touches their mouths with his finger. Like, and I, I could not stop thinking about that with Ruby, yeah. who, like you said, mm-hmm. wanted a taste of her. Yeah. It was more like, I want to be the one to have touched you, you know? Yeah. Ruby doesn't want anything to do with the actual beauty aspect of even the industry. But she even warns her about the Terry Richardson guy. Yeah. I cannot remember anyone's names, but, <laughs> but yeah. yeah. Like Ruby is, like I said, Ruby is the one who know, like smells the bullshit, mm. is kind of in it, but she is in it for her own reasons. And yeah. her reason is experience the beauty and taste of it rather than become exactly. it. So that way she can always stay outside of it and she can always judge and be like, I'm above this. Well, at the restaurant with the other models, she doesn't order anything to eat either. So she's like exactly. mimicking them. Yeah. When she goes to sexually assault Jesse, it feels like it comes out of fucking nowhere. Where, but it didn't really. We Not kind really. of saw no. the pieces coming together. The buildup is there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, and the, so here's the thing that's so fucking fascinating to me. And I'm glad we kind of did go this way instead of all of it just being like, oh, what did you like? Oh, what did you like? So everything I was reading, because I read a bunch of reviews, user reviews, mind you, not even just critic reviews, everybody. Mm-hmm. Like, this is a, exactly like the kind of conversation. That's what I find fascinating is Shelby and V, one of you loves this movie, one of you doesn't like this movie. The things that you like this movie, V, are maybe some of the things that you overlook V because of the other stuff like the antics of the director but here's the thing I'm agreeing with both of you guys and I'm Mm -hmm. not sure how I feel about it but I want to talk about this movie more and dissect it more and rewatch it because there there is an argument Refn is just being this absolute provocateur and that's why he's making these like weird director choices or you could just be like oh no he's being an asshole and he's just bitter about Hollywood and both of those things I think are correct (laughs) like that's the wild thing did you guys read how he didn't say action on set he said violence motherfuckers yeah instead of action exactly that's the kind of like <laughs> i rolled my eyes until they almost fell out of my fucking head when i read that i have to be honest i thought about this a minute ago too when you mentioned not every director has to like put their cast through hell and do a thousand takes it's just ego say what you will about the man's politics now clint eastwood is one of the most fucking simple basic ass directors one and done baby just like <laughs> Oh, no. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> he, like, he never calls action. It's just always mm-hmm. like, start now. Okay, like, it's his one take. Okay, that's good. And just that that's <laughs> fucking it. There's, like, weirdly no ego there. And then, yeah, you hear things like Zack Snyder is kind of another one of those directors that I hear, like, has some catchphrase, like, every time he calls action <laughs> instead of just fucking calling action, right? I, I think all of that is relevant to this because... Both things are true about yeah. Refn. And, and it's yeah. interesting to me, too, because going back to, like, his personal backstory his mother was a cinematographer and his father anders was a director editor he grew up in and around film his whole life right his father edited a couple of Lars von Trier's movies. And if we're talking about European provocateurs. That makes so much sense. Mostly style over <laughs> substance. Very polarizing. <laughs> the through line from this Lars makes so much to sense the now. Refn is, right? is yeah. that makes a lot well, of sense. 
what I kind of thought through, and you know, I don't know the specifics of this necessarily. It was just something I was kind of thinking about when I was contemplating this movie. So he would have been growing up and been around kind of when all the Dogma 95 stuff was happening, right? This entire movement to like minimalism, natural everything, basically no scripts, largely improv, Mm -hmm. no artificial lighting, no artificial camera movement, no music that is non-diegetic, this very, very stripped down way of filmmaking as a means to like get to some kind of truth, right? Von Trier was very much kind of in that group initially. And it's interesting because Breaking the Waves is on the edge of that whole thing. And that's a movie that Reffin's father edited for Von Trier. But Von Trier grows away from that. And he Mm -hmm. goes very, very hard into like style first and foremost. I mean, to the point where like you've got Dogville, which is entirely stage bound empty stage like it's literally just actors walking up and like miming opening doors and walking into houses <laughs> and handling objects and it's just all these actors on a black stage right oh, i don't know if i can handle that i don't either <laughs> and you've got stuff like antichrist which is highly fucking surreal yeah which is the other movie that his father edited so that makes so much fucking sense oh my god it's interesting that there's these two extreme dichotomies to von Trier's filmmaking and just him as a persona. And then you (laughs) have Refn, who is kind of this next generation. And he also started out more naturalistic. Like, if you go back and watch, like, the Pusher movies and Bleeder, they're very stripped down. I mean, they're very, like, raw and ultraviolent and hyper-ridiculous in terms of their subject, but they are not the kind of style exercises that stuff like Drive and Neon Demon and only God forgives at his two recent shows, the Amazon show and the Netflix show that literally just started called Copenhagen Cowboy. Mm. It's interesting how both of them kind of mirror each other in that sense where they start more naturalistic, move considerably more stylistic, but then they both have this kind of provocateur, we keep saying that word, kind of attitude, right, to their filmmaking and their approach to filmmaking. Here's the wild thing, though, to me, though, is with Neon Demon specifically, this movie felt like pun intended a more digestible (laughs) this is kind of what david lynch lars von trier and all these other like kind of things that are hard for people to get into are like but we're going to make it in a more like presentable way yeah if that makes any sense that does presentable not not like presentable in a good or bad way i just mean a more like normies could watch the neon demon and kind of understand what the story is about and like it's relatively straightforward presentable is not the word i would not presentable but i would use is accessible accessible yeah because I feel like we've talked about Lynch on the show a bunch and obviously like Derek and I are like way up our own asses about Lynch yeah we're way up our own asses about Lynch (laughs) I feel like if you truly want to fucking understand something like Twin Peaks you kind of also have to be into like transcendentalism a little bit Mm. and you have to be into like the history of America through the lens of spiritualism and occultism. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of weird background shit that you kind of have to bring to something like that 
to get something out of it, right? And I think at the end of the day, too, Lynch is one of those directors that will just say, you know, when somebody asks, what is this about? He'll say, I don't know. What do you think? How did you feel about it? What did you take from it? I love him, but man, that drives you up a fucking wall every time he does that. And see, it's, it's interesting <laughs> that that drives you up the wall because I feel perfectly fine about a director being like, I'm going to divorce myself from my work. You tell me how this made you feel. Yeah, I love it, but it's also just, come on, man. Sure. I mean, it's artsy stuff snobby bullshit yeah no no it's not even that it's the way he does it the way he does it where he's just like let me tell you about this great coffee shop i went to when i was in connecticut and instead of like doing a director's commentary he just says stories about bullshit well it's just in his folksy like yes sport go fish for a day take a nap for tomorrow and tell me how you think about it but on the flip side of it one thing that stuck with me a couple of years back was refin's response to how poorly received only God Forgives was at Khan. Mm. Him just going on like a fucking diatribe about, well, they just didn't get it. It's the audience's <laughs> fault. They just didn't understand like what I was trying to do or whatever. And like, I don't think that's fucking fair. No. Again, I, what I like about this movie is it fosters conversation. And at the end of the day, that's where I stand on this. I would way rather watch and discuss a movie like Neon Demon, where there is so much to fucking talk about, and mm-hmm. everybody has different fucking viewpoints and things that they're taking from it and bringing to it and transmuting from it, than a movie where, like, either everybody feels the same way about it or everybody feels nothing about it, right? Yeah. I kind of like the messiness of all of these extreme reactions, right? Right? And everything about this movie is working in that extremity. Mm-hmm. I think both sides of that director reaction, audience reaction, what do you take from this side of thing? Like, they're both snobby and bullshitty and artsy-fartsy. I think I'm just more frustrated with, you made this for some audience. So you're expecting to get a reaction from them. Mm-hmm. So then to reject their negative critiques and reaction to the movie and just chalk it up to you didn't get it. I don't necessarily find that to be fair. I agree. It's one of the things where it's like, did you say what you were trying to say fully, thoroughly, like clearly? But he wouldn't be the ultimate artist if he didn't hate his own audience, Aaron. Like, Well, it's, well, it's not just him. So that's so I mean, like, it's funny that this movie is critiquing so much of that bullshit when he himself is being like the ultimate artiste, like you just didn't understand it. And that's what's yep. wild to me is that this movie does a decent job at certain critiques of things. But then he is this other aspect of hashtag artwork and like, what is art? That's what's fascinating to me about this. So something else that Heather and I discussed, because Heather has not seen any of his other movies. Thinking back through it again, we talked about it, she hadn't seen any of his stuff. Um, I was kind of surprised that like she hadn't even seen Drive because it seemed like fucking everybody Everybody, saw Drive when we were in college. So one thing we were kind of talking through, because generally speaking, I find Refn to be fascinating. Good, bad, everything in between. I find the messiness and yet the like extreme technical perfection to be like incredibly fascinating. I like his earlier stuff better than his newer stuff. And what I was kind of musing over with her, and I'm curious to see like what y'all's reactions are, 
his earlier stuff is very European. It just is. It's it's very much a like Europeans take on Europe, European stories. It's the Pusher trilogy. It's Valhalla Rising, Bronson, right? Like it's it's all mm-hmm. of these movies that are very European. And I click with those a lot more than his more recent stuff that is America. Like we said, not just America, but like LA specifically. Yeah. It is fucking Los Angeles. Even in these newer TV shows that he's doing, Too Old to Die Young was like also set in LA and like the whole area around there. The idea of this is America. This is American culture. These are mm-hmm. American tropes and character types and situations and like American stories through the eyes of a European, through the lens of a European, through the filter of a European. And that's the stuff that I don't necessarily click with more. And it's the kind of thing where like, I don't know if it's like a weird symptom of mimesis or what, where I don't vibe with his take on America per se, because I am American and I can (laughs) kind of say that's not quite how things are. I thought the same thing about Neon Demon because it's such a, you know, commentary on LA culture. And you're in the middle of it. And I was like, this could just be me exactly you're like dead set in the middle being, of it you know bias you know the other thing that i found interesting too and this is i'll, I'll toss it off to y'all after this but I found an interview with the DP Natasha Brayer, and this was an interview three years after Neon Demon came out. And she was talking about how, yeah, it was just really disappointing that U.S. audiences did not get this movie. And not just didn't get it, but didn't like it. You know, Mm -hmm. people weren't just saying, I don't get this movie. They were saying, like, I don't like this movie. And that's disappointing because in Europe, this was hailed as a masterpiece. And I wonder, like, again, is it kind of that trick of, you know, again, mimesis where it's, or whatever the term is, where like, because you're objectively too close to the subject matter, you kind of reject attempts at emulating it or recreating it Mm -hmm. or commenting on it or something like that. What do do y'all think about that idea? Because I was thinking about like his filmography as a whole. And like, for me, that's kind of the case. Like, I like his European stuff more. I think that I could agree with that because it does feel like these days we're talking a lot about AI. It almost felt like someone fed the original script through an AI filter and then he made the movie. To me, that's what it almost seemed like. But then with Bronson, I haven't seen Valhalla Rising. I've heard a lot about it, but I haven't seen it. But like Bronson to me just made a lot more sense. And I don't even mean stylistically or anything because I love cerebral shit. But I mean, yeah, I just enjoyed it more. I just I just really enjoyed it more. So I see what you're saying. And then like, I'm not a big fan of Drive, not a big fan of this movie necessarily. I've gotten a lot more viewpoints on it. Like it's definitely an interesting movie to discuss. But yeah, I can see that. Definitely. Bronson and Drive, I think, are interesting counterpoints in his filmography because they have more plot going on. They do. But they don't mm-hmm. have any subtext. Mm-mm. And this movie is and dripping frankly, <laughs> I think that's... Well, I I think that's kind of my biggest issue with the story in this one is I don't think there is any subtext to really? Neon Demon. I think it's just all text. Interesting. I don't either. I feel honestly one of my biggest complaints in my notes I said it was as shallow as a puddle on a lightly rainy day. That's how it felt to me. And the thing is that's not always bad. No. E- me either. I feel like he put all of his cards on the screen yeah. and we saw what it was about. I don't think that's bad because I don't need every movie to be this giant onion that I have to fucking dissect yeah, right definitely but i think the problem is this movie is saying i am important 
Look at me. I am important. I am <laughs> loud. I am flashy. I am calling attention to myself. I mean, it's very much in the fashion industry model. Hey, look at me. Fucking, I'm going to shake you and look at me. Look at this thing I made. I agree like, to an it's, extent. It's that kind of thing. I agree to an extent. And sometimes maybe even Raffin himself doesn't know what he's trying to say. But I think this movie has a lot more going on under the surface. I agree with you, Derek. I'm on your team. Yeah. I don't think it's shallow. What is it, though? Like, I'd love to know because I could be- I was going to throw it over yeah. to V because- yeah. Like she didn't get a chance to talk for a while, so V. So my my theory, I guess, to make it more of a horror movie, which I mean, it's kind of on the surface, but I don't think it's said explicitly. I think Ruby is a very, very old woman who has sold her soul to the devil and that she's basically the neon demon and that what she's doing is the Elizabeth Bathory method. Of- oh, I read that Elizabeth Bathory theory. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, preserving her beauty by bathing in the blood of young beautiful women and i believe that the house that she lives in is is her house like it's very very old yeah and it's i think it's like her house from when she was a younger person and it's old-fashioned because she's super old and i think the blood scene is her getting her period back because like when you're very old as a woman you don't have your period okay that makes sense yeah and i think it's about youth and there was some quote i read somewhere that was like youth means nothing if we could live forever and i think that she wants to be in proximity to beauty and youth because she is very similar to Pearl, actually, an X slash Pearl. Wants to be in proximity of beauty or is jealous of women who are beautiful and young because they're no longer beautiful and young, which I know has like a sexist connotation, but it's kind of a, a common part of witch lore that has gone back hundreds of years that like, mm-hmm. oh, oh, these old crones are like killing virgins to live forever. That's how the witch begins. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Baby guacamole, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She's also like heavily tattooed, which I know like tattooed Tattoos are now like more common than ever, and it's not that weird to see a person covered but in tattoos. Her tattoos are specific. But her tattoos are, I couldn't really see exactly what they were, but they did seem a cult-ish and they also seem to be in a way that it's yeah yeah, that it's not trendy or cute well and they definitely chose a specific time to show them Mm -hmm. instead of Mm -hmm. the rest of the movie so v i'm glad you brought all this up because i was going to move us away from the director himself because we needed to talk about him for a while there's just no way around that but like let's actually give credit to the movie and like let's actually talk about the movie itself and what's in it Mm -hmm. and what i was going to bring us to was in your opinion who or what is the end demon and v i'm glad you tapped this vain because that goes back to why Ruby I think is the most fascinating character to me in this entire thing because there's obviously a lot more going on under the surface with her it sounds like you almost approach this movie more on the literal level of this entire movie is almost just macabre ritual blended into a fashion show basically but it's really at the end of the day all for Ruby's immortality and she has these underlings if we want to go this route in Gigi and Sarah who just want to maintain their beauty and continue being Mm -hmm. fashion icons so of course they'll go along with it and help her and that goes back to again if we want to go the magic route that's why i think Gigi's death is very purposeful of the symbolic nature of her manufactured quote-unquote plastic body mm-hmm. rejecting the natural beauty the natural essence of jesse because like that's what she's done whereas sarah who i don't think ever says that she had any work done throughout the entire movie is able to maintain it and i don't know if this was just me but did it seem like sarah's eyes looked different in that final scene they, did. Mm-hmm. they looked they did. possessed like they looked demonic 
So my thesis, because VP, I'm like you, I think this movie actually is literal. While there are scenes that are nightmares and there are scenes that are more symbolic than literal, I do think it is a literal witch story. I do think the witch is Ruby. I don't know if I would say Ruby herself as the neon demon or if the neon demon is the actual entity she's summoned or mm-hmm. she's working for, sold or sold to, whatever. Or the neon demon is like the demonic personification of the fucked up fashion industry itself and Ruby's just tapping into that untamed power because what we found and like if you learn more about modern magic demonology isn't necessarily that the demons are like physically like horn and tails but actual just spiritual energies that you tap into and you have this endless supply of under 21 year old girls Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and like to change your reality because i think it's all in the coloring Mm -hmm. i think the movie tells you exactly when the neon demon is present and it's obviously with red Mm -hmm. and i think part of it is the neon demon has to kind of possess the subject in this case jesse her Herself before the ritual can really be completed and like her be cannibalized. Oh, that's a good point. I didn't think about that. And that's why I think Ruby is so nice to her for so long. And I think the part where Jesse becomes possessed by the neon demon is the fashion show when that fucking oh, yeah. light show happens. Yeah, the mirrors. Yeah, the mirrors. And you see like the upside down Triforce, mm-hmm. which I think is another like symbolism of the actual neon demon itself. Yeah. And I think the part where the ritual began is that weird fucking art show they go to in the beginning of the movie because that's also kind of demonic looking that person that's kind of fading in and out that's doing air acrobatics or whatever they're doing in that scene i actually think it could go back one further because the photo shoot that opens could be like a mock virgin sacrifice yeah yeah so while everything is being presented on the screen and the movie is very literal about some of the things it's saying i still think there's more deeper and not not necessarily like criticisms on anything but more like where's the supernatural horror element of this movie and i think it's more buried down in the layers of it that's kind of like i think maybe why where i responded better to this movie mm-hmm. than maybe even aaron as well as you shelby excuse me because mm-hmm. i've been thinking about this movie a lot and the more i think about it the more i tend to like it mm-hmm. it is one of the most fascinating watches we've had and so yeah that's kind of where I, i'm with uv i think there's more to it than just hollywood bad fashion bad yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and one more thing about magic stuff so i think that either the neon demon if it's a separate entity than ruby or ruby made that dream of Keanu like putting the knife down her throat as like a warning like warning. he was coming to rape and murder her and I think person he's murdering I mean, if it's not Keanu then it's the weird guy with the bat like it's one of the yeah. bad guys it was like a thing to warn her and to drive her into her arms because she had nowhere mm-hmm. else to go exactly I also think Keanu or the other guy whoever is doing the murdering is attacking the Lolita girl the room number is like next door and yeah. who else, like who's more weaker than a 13 year old runaway like no one's going to be looking for her so I think that's also kind of you know it has a Hollywood undertone that like the most vulnerable or even just the world the most vulnerable get attacked was Ruby the cougar? Yeah. Could be her familiar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Could be her in animal form. V, this is where you and I, I think, are on the same page with this movie. Because I wrote that exact note down that that dream of Kiana sticking the knife down her throat. I think that was on purpose. And I think that was the neon demon or Ruby or both of them warning her that this is about to happen. I'm so glad to hear both of you say that because one of the biggest complaints I saw, and I actually didn't even have this complaint, but I just kept seeing it in the reviews because I read a few of the reviews too, was that scene happened in the 
nothing happened. I don't understand. She had this premonition, and then nothing happened. But I one thing I will say about this director is he doesn't do stuff on accident. Yeah, yeah. That was very purposeful because the person she calls like while the girl is being attacked, exactly, is Ruby, and then goes straight uh-huh. to Ruby. Yeah. So I wanted to ask because I saw this uh, theory was that Jesse is some sort of extraterrestrial creature <laughs> because she has no parents. <laughs> And because in the scene where they're auditioning to be on the runway, everyone's else's eyes are reacting to the light and hers are dilated. Mm-hmm. They're not reacting to the light like everyone else's. The fact that Gigi couldn't digest her is because she was fake. But that was one of the reasons they think that D- Gigi couldn't digest her. And I think a lot of people took the scene with Ruby bleeding was her like dying. Maybe they decided to do this and Jesse was not human. And that's why none of this is working. And that's why so many people are fawning over her for no reason and not for no reason. And she's a beautiful woman, but like it felt ethereal, like, oh, my God, she just stepped into the room. But we see her with the other models and it's like, well, these are all beautiful women. What is happening? Like, just like Sarah experiences where it's like, what is happening? I'm sorry. You didn't even look up for me. And now you're entranced by this other woman who just walked in. But then, like, I would push back on that because the scene where Ruby is menstruating or the blood is coming out, at least. Yeah, it's an expression of joy, like ecstasy. Yeah, I agree. I think I love your theories better about how especially UV where it's like she's menstruating for the first time in a while. This is her home because she says that weird line about, well, is it cool if I crash here? And she's like, you can stay as long as you want. And it's like, why would you be able to stay as long as you want? If you're house sitting, you know, clearly these owners aren't coming back. Mm-hmm. I do think they choose Jesse on purpose to be mm-hmm. the like host or subject of the neon demon or whatever, because she does have that it factor, that mm-hmm. otherworldly thing to her that makes her naturally beautiful or whatever. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's enhanced further by the neon demon growing or its power, whatever. The ritual mm-hmm. is kind of unknowable. And like, I think that's on purpose. Yeah. You're right. But at the end of the day, too, like, even though Sarah lives she's blank that entire modeling scene she's just staring off into nothing Mm -hmm. when her lip twitches i loved that i was like oh yeah which by the way I don't know if she's been a villain in a horror movie, but Abby Lee needs to be casted as a she fucking does. villain in a horror. I mean, I'm telling you, she's so underrated. She was fantastic and old. She's so good and she's beautiful. She needs to be a villain sometime soon. Holy shit. She is <laughs> fucking creepy in this movie. Like mm-hmm. that whole bathroom scene with the shard of glass and everything was intense. Like, oh, yeah. yeah. Her and Jenna Malone are like the two standout performances yeah. for mm-hmm. me in this. And I agree. Both of them should have way better careers. The, another question I was going to ask you guys is who do you think is that figure watching? Walking the desert alone at the end credits. In my opinion, I don't think it's supposed to be that hard to guess who it is. I think it is Sarah walking the yeah. desert alone because she is kind of now the one carrying that weight. If you want to go that way, because mm-hmm. Ruby performed the ritual, got what she wanted. Sarah thinks she got what she wanted. The neon demon to me, I think is inhabiting her now. And now she's kind of like this empty soul. Yeah. And the one who was with her, who did the crime, Gigi couldn't handle it and died and she is wandering off into the desert now and that's kind of like where i took from the the ending credits what about you guys yeah i thought it was sarah i also like with the the scene where she's blank face i also noticed that this is the first time the outfits are like bondage-esque like all the other outfits uh both fashion and like regular people clothes have been kind of flowy or or just are not leather and have straps and stuff and i thought that that was a bit symbolic that even though sarah now has all of the power 
power that Jesse had, she's still like someone's slave. Like she's still a slave to the industry. She's still a slave to beauty standards, to the men that are in charge. Yes. The way, you know, the fashion show seems to to debut Jesse as this beautiful, ethereal, like almost free figure, but she doesn't have that moment. It's not like she's walking out and, and she's glowing in this beautiful thing. She's constricted in the heat with all the lights on her and she has to just like stand still and basically mm-hmm. just follow orders. And when Gigi gets sick, the director is annoyed. Like he doesn't care that there's like a human who's violently ill. He's kind of just like, oh, really? Yeah. And I think like Sarah walking the desert is like symbolic of how there's nothing, you know, there's the shallowness, like there's literally no water. Like she now is kind of doomed to just be empty. Like even though she got the mm-hmm. thing she wanted, she's now just kind of doomed to wander the desert of life, I guess. And you see in that scene when Gigi dies and regurgitates the eye, she's drooling a little bit. She eats the eyeball. Yeah, she's the drool. The string of drool was great. Yeah, she sheds one tear, puts on the sunglasses, and walks back out to the shoot. She kind of knows like she's no longer the best place. I don't know. I, I do think that this movie is more literal. I do think there is an actual neon demon, and the only one that's really benefiting from it is Ruby at the end of the day, where everyone else is not, as far as the female characters go. And I think the men are just there. I think the neon demon just takes advantage of the misogynistic nature of this entire industry Mm -hmm. so yeah like last minute little details let's see so Reffin's nephew Julian Winding is apparently the son of Brigitte Nielsen oh that was a weird connection. He contributed two of the tracks from the club scene, which those are my two favorite tracks off this score is the song Mine and Demon Dance that we hear during like the weird red strobe mm. bondage scene. had a seven million dollar budget it grossed about three and a half so just shy of about half of but this was also one that to our point earlier i don't remember a ton of marketing for this Mm -hmm. when it came out it did the festival circuit got a lot of buzz and then they just put it out in limited release and then that was kind of it i thought bezos himself paid for it when i saw amazon studios at the beginning no now this was frankly (laughs) like when they were just starting and they were just buying stuff that other people were making 
I think the original idea for this movie could have been something entirely different and interesting. In 2013, Refn announced that his next film was going to be a, quote, female and sex-centric horror titled I Walk with the Dead. And like we said earlier, it was set to star Carrie Mulligan and be set either in Miami or Tokyo. LA's great. I like the LA in his movies. It's very wave, right? It's very aesthetic. Miami and Tokyo are like the other two that Jesus Christ, boy, oh boy. This would have been way more beautiful, I think. <laughs> Hashtag aesthetic. Would have loved <laughs> to have seen him like do stuff in either of those cities too, right? Especially if it was Miami 80s. Yeah. <laughs> well, and honestly, yeah. LA, while we have a modeling scene, we're not known for the modeling scene. You don't come here to model. You Correct. go to New York yeah, or it's New York. Tokyo. Yeah. Like, yeah. They mention in the movie even, next step is yeah. New York. Mm-hmm. Again, I think he wanted to make a movie bashing the film industry but to keep it like where he's like no I'm making fun of fashion not film this isn't about me okay I'm not (laughs) mad don't tell people I got mad y'all want to know another real answer to that is his wife who was also a model and an actress specifically was like I am not going fucking anywhere outside of Copenhagen unless it's LA that's the only place (laughs) I will fly to anymore so unless you write the movie for LA I don't give a shit I'm not coming with you the kids aren't coming with you like you're gonna go by yourself (laughs) she's in the she's in the restaurant scene too he put her in the movie yeah yep jody turner smith who is an actual fucking real life capital s supermodel yeah is playing christina Hendricks's receptionist uh, matter of fact there's a lot of real life models in this movie as background extras and just it's one of those if you know you know kind of things mm-hmm. abby lee like i said fucking fantastic she needs to be a slasher she needs to be a fucking slasher <laughs> like Riffin had no idea that she was a real life supermodel again he like didn't? capital s supermodel he had no idea oh my god he cast her because she's fucking striking looking i mean she's like six foot four yeah, she's beautiful oh my god giant tall skinny blonde mm. everything else right he just cast her for her looks and she had a good audition but he had no idea that she was a supermodel the thing she can do with her eyes where she can make them striking in full life and then in another scene become lifeless eyes black eyes like a dollar's eyes yeah. it's impressive those skills are why she's a fucking model. She was good and old, you guys. You have to see old. Really, <laughs> I liked it. <laughs> I love how you're coming on a Neon Demon episode. I know. Fast Neon Demon, and now you're Neon Demon sucks. Old. Go see Old by M. Night Shyamalan. <laughs> yeah. I would say if you want to see her in something else, as well as Carl Glussman, who played Dean, check out Lux Eterna. Mm. That is like a wild, experimental, again, movie about filmmaking and the industry, people playing themselves, telling stories that actually happened to them, but also fucking witchy shit happening on top of that. Cool. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. Also, she's in Mad Max Fury Road. Yeah, she is. Possibly yes. my favorite movie of all time. <laughs> she, I saw she gave him a lot of advice on the film industry, or I mean the modeling industry. So that, that's yeah. what I was about to say. Yeah. She was also like an unofficial advisor for all the like modeling stuff. She advised on like just small things down to like, this is what casting agents would ask for this is what they would have on their tables these are the kind of questions they would be putting out there she taught her how to like cat run and everything else Real quick, are there any horror credits for Jenna Malone, Bella, Heathcote, and Fanning? So Jenna Malone has actually been in like a wide range of stuff. She was first in contact when she was really young. Most people our age would really know her from Donnie Darko. She was also in The Ruins, which I just recently watched. Sucker Punch, The Hunger Games movies, Inherent Vice. Nocturnal Animals was kind of a horror-adjacent movie. Yeah, 
I would say so. Uh, she was in that, and then she's currently on Goliath, which is an Amazon show with Billy Bob Thornton. Bella Heathcote, who played Gigi, she was in the like kind of Logan's Run ripoff in time. She's in Dark Shadows, Pride and Prejudice, and Zombies. She's been on The Man in the High Castle for Amazon for the last couple of years, as well as Strange Angel, which is a show that I want to fucking check out that is about Jack Parsons fucking crazy ass. Yeah, I've heard it's good. And all the like yeah. occult bullshit that like he got wrapped <laughs> up into. They just did a big series on, on it. last podcast. Yeah. It was good. Yeah. Yeah. But then she was also in a horror movie that I've brought up on the show as a recommendation called Relic. She's very good in that. Oh yeah. Carl Glussman that played Dean, one of his first big things was Gaspar Noe's Love, which like, oh boy, that's a whole fucking if you want some sex in a movie, that's the whole entire movie is <laughs> In 3D, just hardcore pornography, basically. Does he hang dong? Oh, yes. He does way more than just hang dog in that movie. He is also in Nocturnal Animals. He is in Wounds, which I've mentioned on the show. He is also in Lux Eterna that I mentioned a second ago. And he's in a movie right now called Watcher that I'm really intrigued with. It has Micah Monroe from It Follows. And I've heard a lot of people bring that up as best horror movies of this past year. Hmm. Uh, Matter of fact, guess where no, he's the one who suggests Glessman to Refn because apparently every fucking actor that came in and auditioned for this role was just emulating Ryan Gosling from Drive. I read that. They were all trying to do Ryan Gosling. <laughs> yeah. Apparently Timothy Chalamet also auditioned for this role, which wild circle back around to my suggestion of Bones and All. Obviously, like we know Keanu Reeves, we know Christina Hendricks. That's fun stunt casting as well, too, and having both of them kind of play against type. Mm-hmm. Desmond Harrington played Jack. He was also in Ghost Ship and Wrong Turn I and love Dexter. Ghost Ship so much. Yeah, that movie's fun. We need to I do Ghost Ship at some point. Yeah, we need to do that movie. So he's also no stranger to horror stuff. Alessandro Navolo plays Roberto, the like main fashion mm. guy, which I don't know why he's uncredited in this movie. Like he is purposely is he? uncredited. Oh. But he was in Face Off and Jurassic Park mm. 3. Oh, then why is he uncredited? Yeah, I don't know. Like, yeah, yeah, he does stuff. Those movies are more embarrassing than this one. <laughs> he was in A Most Violent Year, Selma, You're Never Really Here, The Art of Self-Defense. Like he's been in a bunch of good stuff in the last couple of years. He was just in Amsterdam. Now, before y'all drag me for saying those movies are below this movie, basically. Face Off does fucking rule, I will say. Face Off rules. Face Off rules, whatever. Like I joked about earlier, Charles Baker that plays Mikey, Keanu Reeves' assistant, I only bring him up because he plays fucking Skinny Pete in Breaking Bad. Skinny Pete. So yeah, like the cast of this movie is A+. I I really Mm -hmm. like the cast in this, and like I said, Jenna Malone and Abby Lee are easily my standouts. Oh, and we didn't even mention fucking Elle Fanning, sister to Dakota Fanning. Both of them have been acting since they were babbies. But yeah, she's in Babel, Benjamin Button. Somewhere, Super 8, Twixt, Maleficent, The Beguiled, and she's currently on The Great. The Great is great. Yeah, also. I've heard it's really Fun good. Show. She's worked with mm-hmm. a crazy range of directors. I mean, just going through that list, that's Inuritu, Fincher, Sofia Coppola. Sofia Coppola, her Beguiled is very, very good. Yeah. Yeah, I dug it. The elder Coppola in Twixt, one of his weird latter career things, J.J. Abrams, what a wild chunk of people that she's already worked with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. Refn's wife is the one who suggested Fanning after seeing her modeling work and seeing an early performance of hers. So it's interesting that his wife is the one who kind of pulled Fanning into this whole thing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like, like I said, 
the cast of this is A plus solid all around. It's been interesting to kind of see where these people have gone since. I would be curious to kind of hear more behind the scenes stuff as far as what all these people got up to. Yeah. Some other like behind the scenes kind of tea, I guess. Same. But I think overall, I think where I fall on this movie ultimately is this story has been told so many times. Yes. A Star is Born, All About Eve, Starry Eyes, Showgirls, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, Mulholland Drive we already mentioned, right? I think that's where I'm getting kind of tired on this storyline. Yeah. It's the same thing why I don't respond well to divorce dramas. And I'm getting slightly tired of trauma horror. I I guess Mm -hmm. I'm tired of seeing our central protagonists descend and fall. Mm -hmm. I want a movie where like they go through a transformative process but come out better you know it's it's Mm -hmm. been a long rough couple of years for everybody in this fucking country i would love to see a movie about somebody who like actually comes out good at the end that's why i love the protagonist and pray yeah oh yeah oh yeah we needed it yeah, well, and honestly, even the new Hellraiser movie, granted, she's not in the best place by the end of that movie, but it's definitely a transform. It's in a more cathartic place. Yeah. Cathartic place than it was, yeah. But I think I expect something a little more from this movie because, like I said earlier, like it, it kind of screams, hey, look at me, I'm important. I think my main thing is all the story is wholly observational. The modeling industry is problematic. It's a maze of thorns full of dangerous animals, right? But I don't think the story ever really goes so far as to actually take a stance and say something in rebuttal to that. I agree. Nor does it attempt to like actually move the narrative to a different conclusion because 99% of the time this type of story ends either with the protagonist kind of tragically self-destructing or they are humbled and returned from whence they came. Mm -hmm. If this story is about how terrible this industry is and the people within are all corrupted and hollow and predatory, why not have the lead character achieve her level of power and embrace that newfound access to then tear down the institution around them. Yeah. Again, going back to the Kubrick of all this, because I've had Kubrick on the mind, we're watching his movies. Full Metal Jacket is a similar example of this. Kyle Mm self-destructs at the beginning half of the movie, right? And we see that the machine just kind of keeps moving without him. What happens to Pyle in that movie and what he does doesn't affect anything at the end of the day. It's a completely futile gesture. Mm -hmm. Joker, on the other hand, fully ingratiates himself within the system and uses that new access to kind of destroy it from within. So, like, I think a more interesting movie to me would have been... Give me the entirety of the story as is in the first hour or the first hour and a half if we still want to stick to a two hour movie and then wrap up the whole thing as is, but shift the narrative to Sarah and introduce kind of the new fresh girl who's next in line and have it be more about Sarah having to like now shift her mindset to destroying that system from within and the people within before they can claim another victim. That would be a more satisfying conclusion to me rather than just kind of saying this movie's about how the industry's terrible. There's nothing that goes from that or comes from that. It's just wholly observational and like, yeah, we all agree, but I don't 
think that there's necessarily like where does it go from here? What is he trying to say other than just that? You know? Yeah. I do this with love, but I have to call you out. You got on me a little bit. About not saying this is the movie I wish it was, right? Yes. And that's fair, but I will also push back and say I feel like Dead End. When we were doing Dead End, sure, sure, episode sure. 102 listeners, go back and listen to Dead End. I feel like though throughout the course of this conversation, we're also injecting a lot of our own headcanon and backstory and mythos to this story that's not textual at all. Mm-hmm. But that's not changing it either, or wishing like it was done a certain way. That's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just saying, like, I think we are both approaching this from different angles. No, but I I get you. But at the end of the day, it's still a response to the fact that the story just is a comment in and of itself. Yeah. Yeah. I was the same way with Dead End. I I wish I could have changed stuff about Dead End, so I I understand. Yeah, you're wanting more out of what is there. Mm -hmm. And so we're making the movie kind of fit that image of what we want it to be or where we wish it had gone. I mean, I agree. I wish that there had been a lot more literal witchiness, maybe, and demonic shit toward the end of it. Yeah. It's just textually not there. It's just not there. You know, there, there are hints of things that could be. I just don't think any of it connects together because you could also just look at all of it and just be like cool none of that means anything because <laughs> the cougar in the bedroom could be nothing <laughs> the small supernatural elements they do add feel pointless sometimes like when the wallpaper moves you know when she's like looking at the wallpaper and it looks like someone's pushing out from it and it's like sure yeah and that's one of the things like i, I feel like that's just mood aesthetic you know, sake of mood. <laughs> hashtag aesthetic yeah. yeah you know i think ultimately that's where i fall if if we're all trying to take our four corners and decide how we feel about the movie is that's where i I fall is I think from a technical execution standpoint this movie is pretty impeccable the performances are great the visual aesthetics are great the score is great I think this is a well edited movie I don't find it to be slow I know that's like a breaking point for a lot of people it's just like oh god this movie's fucking slow blah 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 I don't know I just went to see 2001 a space odyssey and like the whole time I was just like ah this is amazing right? <laughs> I, th- I think it's just all about what you can take in terms of pacing well I do wish it was a little little shorter I did not feel the length of it I didn't either I mostly just wish that there was more happening with the actual story. Like, I wish there was more plot to it. That's, like, where my sticky point is. So I'm still 50-50 on this movie in that standpoint. Like, I think it's fascinating. It's an incredible discussion to have. And like I mentioned earlier, at the end of the day, I would way rather watch something like this and talk about it than something that is kind of just bland and forgetful and neutral and you just kind of move on. You know, like mm-hmm. like I said, it's, it's rare that you leave a movie and, like, really want to talk with somebody about it afterward. You know, like, that movie at least has done something. Yeah. to you as an audience member yeah and i feel like that's valuable uh v before we wrap up do you have any final thoughts with neon demon being your suggestion with this being such an all over the place type of discussion any final thoughts on the movie um well i really like hearing shelby's take because i'm not in the industry and it's good to hear what other people who have actually lived in those situations take to it just yeah it's opened my eyes to different takes on the movie and more information about how the director operates but yeah i still really like the the, the yeah i'm with you on that one yeah i you made me see it from a totally different perspective too in a lot of ways so yeah 
Cool. All right, cool. Well, I feel like that's probably a good place to go ahead and wrap everything up. Let me make my fucking D&D joke, all right? You're true neutral. V is lawful good. I'm chaotic good. And Shelby is chaotic evil. Is going to lose us more followers and listeners with her takes on them. <laughs> no, I, I genuinely enjoyed this discussion. And that's what I was hoping we would get from this is, yeah, all four of us had valid points. All four of us had kind of wild points. All four of us are right. All four of us are wrong. I think even the director is right and wrong. Yeah. <laughs> the director yeah. himself doesn't really quite know what he's putting in this movie. Every one of us had different reactions to this movie and brought different things to this discussion. And that that's where I find value in what we're doing on this show. And that's where I enjoy things. So, no, I'm, I'm very glad we had this discussion. Thank you all for coming on. I appreciate it a lot. Thank you for both of your time. This was very fun. Cool. Well, uh, let's wrap it up there. Shelby, what have you got going on in the near future and where can people find you? You can find me. My main show is Scary to Sleep and you can find that on all the socials at Scary to Sleep or you can find just me at Shelby B. Scott on Twitter. I have an Instagram under the same handle too, but I don't think I've updated it in like a year. So Twitter is where you can find me and uh, yeah, find me at Scary to Sleep. I have other projects coming out like the Screenbox podcast. That's about all I can mention right now. So yes, there you go. <laughs> yeah, listeners, follow Shelby, especially on Bloody Disgusting. Uh, listen to her show. It is some of the best horror storytelling I've ever heard. Thank you. Yeah, it's amazing. Oh, yeah. And yes, I'm glad you said Bloody Disgusting. I always forget. Yes, I am part of Bloody Disgusting. My show is and the Bloody FM Network. So yeah, our social media manager is always like, you need to say that part. I'm like, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm very proud of it. I'm very proud of being a part of it. I just forget. Bloody FM, if uh, you ever need yet another horror movie <laughs> podcast, we're available. So, V, what have you got coming up that you want to plug and where can people find you? Um, everyone can find me at T Right Repeat on both Twitter and Instagram. Um, I have two books out called Shadowcast and Dead Ringer. They can be found on Amazon and BarnesandNobles.com. Uh, Shadowcast will be an audiobook around either March or April. I will be having a new show called Girls Are Scary coming out most likely in July. So keep your um, ears peeled for that one. And Shadowcast is good. I've read it myself. Thank you. And with that very fun, conflicting discussion and interesting discussion <laughs> on a movie that does kind of warrant it, we are Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast hosted by me, The Coward Craven, and Aaron, The Movie Monster Boy, in which we dissect fears, phobias, and social relevancy of horror movies across all ages and subgenres. Didn't really discuss how scary this movie is, but I think you could kind of figure it out from our discussion, like if it's something you want to invest your time in one way or the other. You can find us at all the pod catchers at this point, Spotify, Apple. Stitcher, etc., etc. Please continue to rate and review us and follow us, especially on Apple, Good Pods, Podchaser. Those are the ones that we have our most reviews on. Actually, I have a, a chunk of reviews on Spotify as well. We're doing well on there. So yeah, just wherever you you listen to podcasts and at five stars. If you could rate us, just just five stars, that would be yes, that would, that would be great. And remember, I'm not always on the show. Please do not take what I've said to stop listening. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, we need to get Shelby back on for a, a movie she actually likes <laughs> next time. I liked um, Christine. Yeah, I don't know. This is kind of a fun uh, recurring thread though but yes you did like Christine yeah you liked Christine you can check us out on our socials at watch if you dare on Twitter and Facebook Mastodon pending 
we'll see. Uh, but we'll keep you all updated. Uh, shout out to your little brother, Jesse Mansfield, for the bumps at the beginning end of each episode. You can catch him at Party Gator, Possums, Big Clown. Check out his music, throw him some bucks. It's all solid. Speaking of music, our Spotify music playlist is tagged at the top of our Twitter and Facebook. Check that out and follow along for some spooky tunes inspired by horror movies and just like horror music in general. And I think that's about it. Aaron, do you have anything else? You know what my mom used to call me? Sally. <laughs> You're Sally. She was right. I am Sally. <laughs>